And Shabbat Shalom, everybody, and welcome to the Virtual House Church. Boy, we're excited to do another Virtual House Church with you here today online. If this is your first time joining us, you can go to virtualhousechurch.com. That's virtualhousechurch.com. Let me switch this over here. Hang on just a second. I thought I had that ready. Virtualhousechurch.com. Whoops. Always something here. There we go. Okay. Go to virtualhousechurch.com. That's our primary website. And uh, if you're new here, there's some just sort of introductory text here for you. We are in the process of updating this website. So if you're watching this on a mobile device, like a cell phone or a tablet or something of that nature, you can uh, click on this picture right here, and it takes you to a mobile-friendly version of the new website. And if you're watching this on a computer, you can click on that right there. And it will take you to the new website that I'm designing that works really good on computers. <laughs> Unfortunately, that template that I really liked is not a responsive template, meaning it doesn't automatically adjust to tell if you're watching on a computer or a cell phone. I like the template, but uh, that's why I had to do it this way. So um, there's some cool videos for you, introductory videos for you there. Understanding the two commandments that Yeshua gave: love your neighbor, love God as you know, with all your heart, soul, mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. The 2 summarizes the 10, and the 10 summarizes 613. 613 are elaborated here. Click on that. And uh, if you're looking for fellowship in your area, you can zoom in on this 119 Ministries Fellowship Finder. And let's see, we'll pick somebody in Mexico. And Viviana Valdez, you can contact that person right there. That's how it works. You just click on one of these little tags right there, and uh, hopefully you can unite with somebody who's like-minded and who's trying to walk in Torah just as you are, and then maybe you can fellowship uh, in person. We certainly enjoy fellowship here virtually, but there's something to be said for being able to actually uh, be in the presence of people, so that's one way to do that. Then there's these videos here by Zach Bauer. I recommend you watch all of them. They're really good. They answer some of the typical arguments that uh, what I now refer to as pagan Christianity will uh, have, you know, the arguments that they have against what we're doing here. So Zach does a good job from new to Torah in answering those right there. And if you scroll back up to the top, who we are, just as about Sheila and I, what we believe, our statement of faith. Uh, and the coming out of Babylon page, that's for, for people who are new and want to understand what does it mean to come out of Babylon? And what are we doing here? Uh, what does it mean to keep the Sabbath? How do we keep the Sabbath? And what about the Moedim, the Feasts of, of Yahuwah? Uh, they're not the feasts of the Jews, if you read Leviticus 23. These are the feasts of yod heh vav -Heh. And uh, so th there's a bunch of stuff there to help you figure that out. And the VHC store, if you click on that, that takes you to a page that has the calendar that Kevin and Amanda Roberts put out. You click on that, it takes you to a free PDF. And uh, if you want to buy a printed copy of it, you can get it domestically. Pick uh, If you live in the United States, click that button. If you're outside the United States, click that button. And uh, another calendar here that Juan Carlos put together for us. Same thing. You can click on that. Free PDF. And if you'd like to get the workbook, since we are just starting, we're only in week two uh, right now in Genesis. Uh, you can get them definitely quicker through Amazon, um, cheaper through us. Uh, I have... Uh, so anyway, if you click on each of these individually, they'll take you to uh, Amazon. If you click on this, th th we fill those orders here through our house. I have uh, filled all, but I think three. So the last three people that ordered, uh, I've, I ran out again, and I'm expecting another shipment within the next week or two, hopefully. Uh, man, it's just 
it's been a lot slower than normal, so I apologize for that. But uh, other previous orders are in the mail. So uh, if you'd like to get it in PDF, you can get that immediately. Download that, and then you can print off your own copies of the this week's study, or the whole book for that matter, if you want to. And the Ephraim Awakening DVD-ROM that has all the stuff that you see there, that's all available for you, and it helps to support our ministry and what we're doing here. keeps us going, keeps the lights on for us, and the food on the table. Uh, so we appreciate your support. And, and speaking of that, uh, I just want to say thank you. Uh, this last couple of weeks, I've received quite a number of uh, uh, letters and uh, um, packages of different things people have sent me. So if you sent me package, somebody sent me a a a, a, a Cipher, um, Bible. Uh, now I already had one, but this is great. So now Sheila has one. <laughs> so uh, certainly appreciate that. That's a. I mean, the book is like like six inches thick. I mean, the thing is huge. Uh, it's, it's a very valuable resource that you can uh, get online that uh, Dr. Stephen Pigeon put together. So uh, I really appreciate uh, whoever it was that sent that to me. Thank you. I don't want to mention any names uh, online here, but uh, thank you for that, and thank you for those who have contributed financially to our ministry. I don't say it enough. We can't do it without you. Thank you so much for your support. Really, really, truly appreciate it. So thank you for that. The kind letters and the testimonies that have been coming in have been really wonderful because we start to wonder, you know, is this really effective? What are we doing here? You know, uh, and that just helps keep the fire going, so to speak. Um, back to the website here, dealing with Paul, a couple of links there. What do we do with about uh, the writings of Paul and specifically Galatians there? And then when you get to the weekly Bible studies, what's happening here now as I go through these one week by week is I'm updating them. So we're on Genesis week two. Genesis week three, if you click on that right now, it takes you to the Virtual House Church Week 3 study uh, that's still right here on this site. However, these two, Genesis 1 and 2, take you now to the new website. So I'll click on that. That takes you to the new website. So this is the study on Genesis 2. Same layout, essentially, uh, as the previous website where you have the home about us, about Sheila and I, the store right here, their statement of faith coming out of Babylon here. Torah Fellowship there, the, the map is there. The What About Paul, Foolish Galatians, Hebrew calendars here. Uh, and a few other resources I added. The Yahuwah's Love Later, if you haven't listened to that yet, uh, I think you'd be blessed by that. You might want to click on that and just sit back and let Yahuwah just shower his love over you. If you're stressed out about what's going on in the world today, click on this one right here, Psalm 91. Listen to John William Galt, the voice of the movies, who's a friend of mine, uh, read Psalm 91 for me, and I put some nice music behind it, so it's it's a really good way to de-stress about the events of the world and just rest in the promises of the Word. And some other Bible study tools are listed here. These are the online tools that I typically use the most right here. Again, you got the calendars there and support us if you feel so led. And this is a new feature right here, uh, this week's Bible study, which you can also get to from the homepage if you happen to come to this website directly. Uh, there's a big button right here, Come Out of Babylon. That takes you to this page. And then click here for the live stream page, which is this week's study. And here in this week's study, we have the Parsha in 60 seconds. That is the Hebrew word for study, and it distills this week's study down to a 60-second video. So we'll go ahead and play that to get us started here today.
Shalom and welcome to Parsha in 60 seconds. Today's portion is from Genesis 6, 9, 11, 32. It is called Noah. Noah was a righteous man and walked with God. He had three sons. God saw the world had gone bad. God tells Noah to build an ark because God would cause a flood. During the building process, all the people trolled him. When the flood came, Noah, his family, and all the animals were in the ark and God shut them in. The rain fell 40 days and 40 nights. The waters destroyed all life and 150 days later, the waters receded. God made a covenant that never again a flood destroy the earth and set a rainbow in the clouds as a sign. Noah planted a vineyard, got wasted, and was naked within his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers. Shem and Japheth placed clothes on their father without seeing their father's nakedness. When Noah woke up, he cursed Ham's son Canaan to become the lowest of slaves to Japheth and Shem. Noah lived to the age of 950 and then died. Several generations later, the earth was populated by many nations. Everyone on earth spoke the same language and they all decided to make a huge tower. God confounded their speech so that they could not understand each other and scattered them over the face of the earth. Thus, the city was called Babel. Nine generations after Shem, Abram married Sarai. Sarai was barren. Abram's father relocated them to Haran and died. And that is Noah in 60 seconds. <laughs> All the people trolled him. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know what that's like. <laughs> um, so uh, that's the study in 60 seconds. And then, of course, this video right here is the one we are doing right now, which will archive this page. And this page will stay up for a whole week till next Friday when I update it for Genesis week three. And then if you click on the big button right here, it says click for additional notes. That takes you to the page that we saw a minute ago, which is this one right here. This is the show notes page for this week's study. Again, if you're watching it on a mobile device, you can click on that and it's, uh, it'll take you to this version of the website, which is scalable. Uh, it, it, it shrinks and adapts and everything uh, for you if you're watching it uh, on a cell phone or a tablet or something like that. These are the scriptures for this week's study, Genesis 6, verse 9 through chapter 11 verse 32, so that covers a lot of ground right there. The prophets, we have Isaiah 54, 1 through 55, 5, and Micah 5, 1 through 9, and these are the New Testament scriptures that go along with all that right there. Again, the Parsha right there, these are the studies we've done in the past. The uh, 2012 audio, the 2013 broadcast, the 2016 broadcast, this is the one we're doing right now. Uh, every now and then, I put the study as done by other ministries out there, um, I can't remember who who this one was, but this was another ministry. This might be Charlie and JP, I think, um, their their ministry. So you can click on that to watch their study. And always recommend you download and print off these studies by Ardell from Your Living Waters Commentary. These are really, really good there. The three workbook questions, same for every week. How does this week's Torah portion relate to the half Torah and Brit Hadashah portions, or in other words, Torah and Prophets and New Testament? That's just the Hebrew for those. What do you find most interesting about this week's reading, and what is the general theme of this reading, and how does it apply to our lives today? Good questions to keep like a journal for yourself, to, to get your mind thinking, and if you're in part of a home group fellowship of some sort, you can use those to get the discussion going. These are uh, portions from the book of Joshua, chapters 5 through 10, that go along with and significantly unpack and elaborate on what we are reading and going through here in Genesis. So if you want to read the Joshua account, those are there for you there. And there's a whole bunch of videos here from the past uh, dealing with the Nephilim and my take on that and my books, Archon Invasion, and the DVDs and package deal right there if you want to get the Genesis Nephilim and Flood package deal. Save a few dollars right there. And this is a great resource, the Dictionary of Scripture Proper Names by J.B. Jackson. You can click on that to get that book. 
And, uh, of course, I apparently talked about transhumanism in the past, the 2045 Strategic Social Initiative, all stuff there, um, typical evolutionary model of our origins, the uh, meanings of the first ten patriarchs. I always find that fascinating if you take the meanings of their names. Uh, you have Adam as man, Seth appointed, etc., and you put them all together. From Adam to Noah, it says, Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. It's just like extraordinary. That's the entire plan of the whole Bible right there for us in the names of the first 10 patriarchs. Really cool. Some timelines that I put together in the past there you can check out. The following here was several years before coming to a proper understanding of biblical cosmology. So uh, forgive me, but this is from pre-2015, probably the 2013 or 14 broadcast, maybe even 16. Uh, where I was talking about the mechanisms that I believed caused the flood and was going primarily off of the teachings of people like Dr. Ken Hovind and Dr. Carl Baugh, with all due respect to both gentlemen, who I really love and admire and appreciate for all that they've done, they're missing it when it comes to cosmology, in my opinion. So you can pretty much ignore all this. This is just there for uh, historical value from previous broadcasts. Uh, some of the things I had believed before. Dealing with the Table Nations is a graphic here. Dealing with the multiple incursions or no multiple incursions issue. These are some graphics that are Punnett squares, Nephilim Punnett squares, I call them. And uh, if you ever wondered if there were female giants too, well, there's a whole lot of really big female giants today, so I have no problem believing that there were female giants in the past. And, of course, at the very bottom, we have the Tribulation Protection Plan and the Psalm 91 as a video. So, okay, all that admin stuff aside, let's go ahead and jump in here. And I am joined this week with uh, Juan Carlos and Jake Grant. Hey, guys. How you doing? Hey, guys. Hey, Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Yeah. So uh, it would be just like last week. It would be very easy for me to hijack this entire broadcast. So I'm going to try really hard not to and to uh, allow you guys some time here to uh, share with us your insights on this week's tour portion, as well as the prophets and New Testament. So, uh, since uh, Juan Carlos, you are sitting right beside me here in the virtual world, why don't we start with you? Sure, for sure. Actually, I can see me. I can see me sitting beside you, Rob. Here, <laughs> how you nice. doing, buddy? <laughs> yeah, doing good. Doing good. We can do some high five. Oh yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, guys, it's nice to be once again in the in the virtual house church. You know, the, this portion is is a really interesting, uh, and, and and actually, you know, uh, there are so many many topics in in this portion that uh, is the basis for for the understanding of the of the entire the scripture. You know, we see we see the, the story of Israel during the desert. We see a lot of uh, story about the enemies of Yahuwah, for example. And uh, without understanding uh, why Israel needed to, without understanding this portion about how this nation, uh, what was the source of this nation, the connection with the uh, with the curse of uh, over Canaan, it's impossible to understand why Israel needed to destroy those nations, and also understanding from an end times point of view when we see in Tehillim that uh, Yahuwah will put uh, the enemies under the feet of Yahushua Hamashiach the King. We cannot understand what are those enemies. So, so the connection with the Nephilim, the connection with the 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 the, the curse over Canaan is so important, uh, and it's everything all together. It is in this portion, 
you know, and I think it's going to be important also for, to hear from you, Rob, uh, in all your studies about uh, about uh, Nimrod, about uh, about the Nephilim, uh, because uh, this is a, an important portion as well on this uh, in this parasha about uh, all the uh, the Tower of Abel, the confusion of the language, how Nimrod was the, the first king that tried to to get all the all the dominion over over all the earth. Uh, and you know, I have been studying for a while about uh, about uh, about Nimrod. I, I do believe, as well as uh, most probably you guys, that uh, Nimrod is the is the source of the Antichrist, mm-hmm. is the Antimashiach. And and you know, this is so important because it's connected as well with the, some some important clues that I, I will just share the, a, a glimpse of this. When we read in the chapter ten of Bereshit about the where the the the, the dominion of Nimrod started was in Babel, the Tower of Babel, but he also uh, built several cities. And you know uh, uh, what is interesting is that uh, one of the cities that he built uh, it was called the Great City. Mm. You know, and and, and why I mentioning this because uh, the understanding who is the Great City from an end times point of view is so important. And no matter that the end, the Great City in the end times is a different city, and it's my belief is Jerusalem. Uh, the, the only fact that the uh, a name convention of Great City is also connected to Nimrod for me is is, is an amazing connection to understand the figure of Nimrod and how this uh, this is connected to the. To the to the end times and anti, uh, to the anti mashiach uh, but uh, going 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 in more more details about the previous chapter of this uh, of this uh, portion, you know the, what is written in the in the great prophecy of uh, our mashiach in Matthew Matthew chapter twenty four that the the days before his coming his second coming is going to be as the days of Noah mm-hmm. the days of Noah. Uh, it's so important because it's a key uh, uh, for our understanding about the times we are living. You know, one of uh, one of the interesting topics uh, that I see in the chapter six of uh, Genesis, and was the main reason of uh, Yahuwah deciding to destroy the, the, the entire earth, it says in the chapter six, verse eleven, and the earth was corrupt before Elohim, and the earth was filled with violence. And and we know what what was going on uh, with the, with the Nephilim, how the Nephilim brought full destruction over the earth. When we do this uh, entire study with the complementary books uh, to understand, especially the book of uh, Enoch, and also the book of, of Yasser and the book of Jubilees uh, is also helping uh, helping us in this understanding. We know that uh, there was a lot of violence going on in the earth, and also all flesh got corrupted, and the. Uh, it's just a matter to see what's going on in our world today. You know, violence is uh, rising up every day, everywhere. Uh, we see nations against nations, ethnics against ethnics, and and you know, it's, it's just a matter to to understand the words of our uh, Mashiach that in the as in the days of Noah, that is going to be similar in the days before his coming. So it was violence that uh, that period of time. We are seeing violence as well. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of a key for us to understand that we are living in the end times. Um, and uh, what what is interesting because when we see when we see the full uh, story about the flood, 
and and we do the counting we see that the the, the entire destruction and the, and the entire time that noah and his family and the animals were in the in the ark was a, a year and 10 days mm. and uh, and i would like to hear from you guys uh, about this point because uh, i heard in the past and, and i have been doing my own studies on this that the, how long it will it will last the wrath of Yahuwah in the last time. Mm. And I heard few few theories, uh, and, and, and for me it's quite compelling, that the day of Yahuwah uh, is not going to be one day, one literal day. It's going to last almost a year. And we and when we when we do the calculation about uh, about this in the about the seals, about the trumpets, about the the bowls of the wrath. We can get to a conclusion that it will, will last almost a, a year, starting, you know, uh, is my belief, with the seal of the of the hundred and forty-four thousand, that is has has a, a so clear similarity with what, what happened in the first Exodus, when the, the 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 seal and the sign on the doors was in order to protect the firstborn. It's going to be exact, something similar to what happened what's what's happened in Revelation. With the seal of the 144,000. So, so when we look in the patterns in the scripture, most probably that's going to happen during Pesach in the first month. That the second Exodus potentially will start. And and why why I'm, I'm bringing this up to the to the discussion that uh, we see when the flood started. It started in the second month. You know, it's very close by to the to the to the Pesach in the first month. So so. Is it maybe a connection on the the, the wrath of Yahuwah being poured out on the earth during the during the, the flood with what's going to happen in terms of timing in the last days? I I, I see this is a really fascinating topic uh, to to discuss and study how things are going to be repeating maybe in the same times and it's, it's a clue for us to to understand the time and the seasons we are living and maybe also to be prepared. In the same way that the Noah had to to, to prepare himself. Um, other topics that uh, caught my caught my attention and uh, would be interesting to to discuss uh, today, uh, you know, is the parallel between the the flood and baptism. You know, Jake was sharing uh, a few weeks ago about baptism, and uh, and actually we were discussing as well in virtual house in the in this virtual house in the few weeks ago as well. And uh, this is a clear indication, a clear parallel of the flood being the first baptism over the earth. And, uh, and the parallel is amazing because uh, what is baptism, as it is written in the Brit Hadashah, is to die, you know, and to revert again. It's, to, to, it's, it's a new birth in water. And we are commanded that we need to, there are two kinds of births, it's water and the spirit. So, so in this case, we see everything being destroyed, the flood, in order to come. Uh, in a new life again, and uh, and and this is uh, really really interesting uh, as well in terms of timing, because when we see in the chapter eight of Bereshit, Genesis, it was in the first month, in the first day of the month. This is in the verse thirteen, in the first month, in the first day of the month, that the water were dry up on the earth. It says, and Noah removed the covering of the ark. So it was, it wasn't uh, yet the Noah going out of the ark. But he removed the covering, so so it's basically in the new year, he started a new life, mm. 
So, so it's, it's like uh, Yahuwah resetting. It's a, it's a great reset. It's not this fake uh, great reset that uh, the world is talking uh, in our days. was the great reset of Yahuwah or his creation in order to, to start all over again. And it started a new year with a new, uh, a new creation uh, with the people he selected. Um, one, one additional thing that uh, for me is the, one of the, the, the two relevant uh, topics uh, that caught uh, really my attention today I wanted to share it, uh, with you guys um, is uh, the parallel between the covenants. You know, uh, it's not clearly written here in the, in the scripture, but when we make a reference in the book of Jubilees about the timings, we see that the, the covenant between Yahuwah and Noah was during the third month. Uh, and um, this is really amazing because we know that the, the giving of the Torah in the Mount Sinai was also in the third month. And, and this is when we are celebrating Shavuot. So, so, so there is a, it's a good indication that the most probably, because uh, our Elohim is a Elohim, Elohim of patterns, he is repeating his covenant, he's repeating what he's doing in his times. So there is a good indication that most probably the, the covenant between uh, Yahuwah and Noah was on the 15th of the third month. That is basically the, uh, when he's celebrating the Shavuot. And, and why is so amazing? Because uh, uh, the Ruach HaKodesh, we, we know that was poured out during Shavuot. So we see three indications and something really important happened between the covenant with Yahuwah and his chosen people. And I'm wondering myself, what's going to happen with the sealed of the Brit HaShah, the new covenant? We know that we are in the new covenant through the blood of Mashiach, but we know that he's going to seal that covenant during the second exodus. So I'm wondering myself if that uh, new covenant is going to be sealed as well in a Shavuot, in a coming Shavuot. It's my belief that that's going to that's gonna happen. And, uh, and and what is wondering is, 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 is wonderful, you know, uh, talking about the Haftarah, the, the prophets in this case, what is written in, in the book of uh, Isaiah, Yeshayahu, chapter uh, 54, verse 9 and 10. When Yahuwah is comparing uh, the covenant of peace, he made with the Noah in order to not to destroy the earth, not to curse the ground again in the way that he did it with the waters. He's comparing this covenant of peace with the covenant he has with Jerusalem. Mm. Because the entire chapter 54 of Yeshayahu is my belief that's talking about Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem. And he's comparing that he, that covenant of peace that he, he made with Noah is the same covenant of peace that he has with Jerusalem. What it means? that the restoration of Jerusalem through the new Jerusalem, that's the right of Yahuwah, uh, is similar to the, 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 the pact, the covenant he made uh, with, uh, with Noah and with entire humanity. And this is so wonderful because it's, uh, it's, the, it's the hope, it's the faith we need to keep in our, in our hearts about the, uh, the promises of Yahuwah for his people, the promises of Yahuwah to his city, the city he decided to put his name is going to be the city of the king, as is written in the in the scripture. And, and you know, Yahuwah is so repetitive during this portion that it's my covenant, he's saying, my covenant all over the place. So, so you know, we know what's the covenant of Yahuwah. It's the covenant he sealed with Adam. It's the covenant he put with Noah. It's the same covenant with uh, with Israel. What what I found uh, also funny somehow, but it's, it's, it's amazing, is about the sign of the covenant. It's the rainbow. And it's the, in the way that it's, uh, it is written, 
it says that every time that Yahuwah will see this sign, he will remember his covenant. Mm. And what is what is funny somehow and, 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 and interesting because this is so similar to the tzitzit. You know, the commandment of the tzitzit is that every time that we see the tzitzit, it's for us to remember that we need to follow the way of Yahuwah, that we need to keep his commandment, is to remember the covenant we have with Yahuwah. So, so, you know, it's a kind of uh, the rainbow in the way that I see it now. It's a kind of tzitzit. It's a big tzitzit in the Shemayim <laughs> that is for Yahuwah and also for us to remember the covenant he made with entire humanity. That's kind of cool, man. Uh, you know, a lot of like on the logo for the Virtual House Church, it, it shows the tzitzit with uh, white and blue, which is, I guess, pretty much the, uh, the traditional uh, seat seat is just white and blue although there's no commandment that that should be the case the only commandment is that you need to have a blue thread in it so many people will will make uh, very colorful seat seats that as long as it includes the blue thread you know they'll they make uh, color coordinated seat seats to go with their outfits you know so whatever their the colors of their outfit are might have various threads uh, the color to match whatever they're wearing as long as it includes the blue thread I hadn't thought of that Though that that's pretty cool. Of course, the rainbow includes uh, blue, um, a heavenly seat seat. Yes, <laughs> I never the thought of that. That's I, I like that man. That's pretty yeah, cool. That's cool. I like that. Yeah, too. it's the big one. <laughs> nice. Well, so so that's for the moment, guys. I have something else, but I, I want to keep it uh, for for later. So so okay. I don't know, Jake, if you have a comment or or all right. Well, re- remind us if we forget. You've got something to say for later. So. Uh, Jake, yeah, man. What what are your thoughts on this week's Torah portion and the prophets in New Testament? Yeah, so um, this is a really interesting one, um, particularly because we're still in the pre-flood time frame, so we can go into a little bit of that. I kind of broke up my my uh, little notes here uh, based on pre-flood and after the flood. Huh. Um, but uh, you know, a, a major thing in kind of expanding some of the the different stories here. You guys brought it up is uh, the Book of Jasher. And, uh, and this week I, I kind of took some time to study through kind of how the accounts were discussed in the book of Jasher and, and uh, just a, you know, a, you know, a precursor to this, you know, Jasher that we have today is supposedly, uh, you know, a 16th century Jewish midrash. However, we don't know if they had access to documents or, you know, older, uh, or, you know, oral traditions that kind of expounded on these various stories. So uh, we do know that the book of Jasher is mentioned in 2 Samuel 118, uh, where uh, it says, Also he bade them to teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. Behold, is it not written in the book of Jasher? And also in Joshua 10.13, where it talks about the sun stood still and the moon stayed. And is this not written also in the book of Jasher? So, you know, there's some references there uh, in the canonized text to the book of Jasher. And, um, you know, the, the worst that it can do is kind of give us a more elaborated view and you know Hollywood does this all the time but they you know insert tainted kind of esoteric you know you know other opinions into scriptural narratives so you know I do think there is a value in kind of looking at some of these extra biblical accounts that expound on uh, the time before the flood because really you know we don't have much to go off of um, because the scripture is so condensed in terms of what it talks about you know pre-flood and during these early uh, Genesis chapters, but uh, I really found it some of the things that were brought out in Jasher very interesting. I wanted to bring them up, and also um, I, I, like I mentioned in the last episode, I'm, I'm going to be reading through uh, some of the Targums, uh, which also have you know some differentiation in the language of the text, 
and uh, I stumbled across one that was really fascinating, and uh, and for me, uh, it really kind of uh, foreshadows uh, the whole uh, premise of of Yahushua being the Word and and him being the mediator that we have interacted with throughout mankind's history, uh, being the angel of the Lord or the one in the burning bush, the one on Mount Sinai that made that covenant. And so um, I'm going to bring that up here in a little bit because uh, it's talked about in regards, uh, it kind of ties into that whole covenant language with the rainbow and and it was brought out in the Targum in, in a little different way that really made it stand out to me. But um, before we get into like Jasher and stuff, uh, another extra biblical book that talks about the time before the flood, uh, which I, I give much more weight than the book of Jasher that we have today, um, I consider it, it much more uh, credible um, because the book of Enoch uh, was actually found in the Dead Sea Caves. Uh, supposedly there's a full Aramaic translation that uh, has been preserved. And the book of Enoch, for those of you who have not studied into it, it does characterize uh, the time before the flood of Noah. And it talks about this vision of Enoch, um, this righteous man who uh, in the book of Jasher actually expounds that um, Enoch was, you know, basically lifted up as a as one of the rulers pre-flood because he was one of the few that was teaching the righteous work, you know, commandments of God, and and uh, all the people uh, were kind of sent out this message as, hey, if you would like to learn about the God of Adam that created us, come and, and learn from Enoch, and uh, and of course we know that there was many wicked in the earth, and it was kind of after Enoch uh, that. The earth, you know, descended into much more wickedness and chaos because he wasn't teaching, you know, those righteous things anymore. And it kind of uh, boiled down to Methuselah and Noah were the only ones left preaching righteousness and calling for people to repent. Um, but uh, I wanted to point this small passage out because it's an interesting tidbit about Noah that many people might not have heard. Um, and, and it's in Enoch chapter 105, verses 1 through 3. And it's a really fascinating exchange, um, which says, um, After a time, my son Methuselah uh, took a wife for his son Lamech, and she became pregnant by him and brought forth a child, the flesh of which was as white as snow and red as a rose, the hair of whose head was white like wool and long, and whose eyes were beautiful. So right off the bat, he's he, just to give you some context here, he's describing the birth of uh, Lamech's son, Noah. And Noah seemingly is being described as a straight-up albino, which mm -hmm. is really fascinating. Yeah. Um, and uh, as it goes on here in the passage, um, and it, it talks about how he opened his mouth and, and spoke and blessed the Lord of Righteousness. Uh, and, uh, and so Lamech, his father, was afraid of him because of how strange he looked. And it says, flying away, he came to his own father, Methuselah, and said... I have begotten a son unlike to other children. He is not human, but resembling the offspring of the angels of heaven. So um, I, I thought this is a really fascinating exchange because, you know, of course, we didn't get to go into it a lot last tour portion, but, you know, that tour portion wraps up with the whole Genesis 6 incursion and the whole aspect of the sons of God came down and took for themselves wives among the, do you know, the daughters of men, and they beget giants, and Nephilim came from them. And, uh, and so from this passage, there's a couple things we can kind of extrapolate uh, is one, uh, Noah being born as an albino was not a common thing. Uh, you know, his, you know, pasty snow white skin was probably not common. You know,
know, we know that Adam was formed from the dust of the earth, so it's likely that many of uh, the, you know, at least the the skin tones of pre-flood people were clay, the various clay tones. Um, but it, it apparently, um, because of his strange look, he resembled the children of the, the fallen angels. Um, and we know, of course, he wasn't, but that's exactly what his father Lamech said. And, and, uh, and then there was this whole, you know, inquiry sent to Enoch, who, you know, was... Uh, communicating, you know, very closely with the throne of heaven, and and uh, and he's like, well, you know what? He's actually going to be this one that uh, is preserved through this terrible judgment that comes on Earth, uh, the flood, and uh, and so you know, it makes me think, you know, there's something we can look at this as, uh, you know, perhaps uh, the Nephilim children when they were born uh, had this similar characteristic of of being like these pasty white albino looking creatures since we have this text that seems to indicate that that's exactly what Lamech, his father, uh, wondered. Um, and of course we know that, you know, this is a trouble pre-flood with uh, these fallen entities coming and, and uh, having, you know, Nephilim offspring. So, you know, it, it probably really freaked <laughs> his parents out whenever he was born. Um, but, uh, you know, it's really interesting um, that, whenever we start to look into the book of Jasher, um, uh, it kind of expounds a little bit on a really important premise uh, in Genesis that talks about how um, man's year, you know, Yah's not going to strive with man because they are wicked, uh, and so that their years are going to be 120 years. And I'm currently under the perspective, um, just based on the traditional canon, that this 120 years is more akin to 120 jubilee cycles um, which is really fascinating because if we can kind of calculate where we're at in the terms of those jubilee cycles perhaps we can kind of fit where we are at in the biblical timeline of how many days are allotted to man and uh, and so that's fascinating but in Jasher 5 it says um, uh, speak ye and proclaim to the sons of men saying thus saith the Lord return from your evil ways and forsake your works and the Lord will repent of the evil that he has declared to do to you, so that it shall not come to pass. For thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will give you a period of 120 years. If you will turn to me and forsake your evil ways, then I will also turn away from evil which I told you, and it shall not exist, saith the Lord. And Noah and Methuselah spoke all the words of the Lord to the sons of men, day after day, constantly speaking to them. But the sons of men would not hearken to them, nor incline their ears to their words, and they were stiff-necked. And the Lord granted them a period of 120 years, saying, If they will return, then God will repent of the evil so as to not destroy the earth. Um, so this is just in itself really interesting, and I wanted to kind of look at this for a second, uh, because we know that um, Yeshua uh, talks about how it will be likened unto the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And, uh, and so... You know, this whole period of 120 years being given to these men pre-flood to repent, uh, and how in the time of the end, before the day of the Lord, you're going to have uh, a lawless people that are stiff-necked and refuse to repent of their sins. And uh, and I think um, uh, <laughs> people are saying, what's up with the sapphire? I have like an emoji popping up on my screen. What is that? <laughs> Oh, um, uh, that's popping up on the Skype for some reason. I don't know what the deal is oh, with the... What's, they're like, what's up with the sad face? I'm not secretly signaling anything. No <laughs> that's weird. Yeah, sorry about that. I, I don't know. I guess my mouse went over. There's a little icon on the Skype that says react. 
so my mouse probably went over that, and it just pops up all the icons. So there was a little, little sad face. Ooh. <laughs> Sorry about that. You were talking about repentance, AJ. Maybe that's why. Sorry about that. It was a sad time leading up to the flood because men were wicked and no one then wanted them all to repent. So sorry about that. Um, but yeah, this is no problem. This is a this is an interesting parallel to how if the 120 years also is a reference to the 120 jubilee cycles that were given to mankind before the day of the Lord and the consummation of the times where you know all the wicked will you know be you know, kind of shut down and that thousand year reign gets kickstarted. Um, you know, there's a really sad exchange uh, with these people that um, at the end of this 120 years after Noah and his and, and Methuselah were, you know, prophesying, saying, repent, repent, that none of them turned and none of them repented. Um, but what happened was uh when the flood began to, you know, spring forth and the fountains of the deep were shaken, um, it says that in Jasher 6:17, and the sons of men assembled together, about 700,000 men and women. They came unto Noah to the ark, and they called to Noah, saying, "Open for us that we may come and see, and come in to thee in the ark. And wherefore shall we die?" And Noah said with a loud voice and answered them from the ark, saying, "Have you not all rebelled against the Lord?" And said that he does not exist therefore the lord brought upon you this evil to destroy you and cut you off from the face of the earth is not this the thing that i spoke of you of 120 years back and you would not hearken to the voice of the lord and now do you desire to live upon earth and they said to Noah, we are ready to return to the lord only open for us that we may live and not die and Noah answered them saying behold now that you see the trouble of your souls you wish to return to the Lord, why did you not return during these 120 years which the Lord granted you as determined period? But now you come and tell me this on account of the troubles of your souls. Now also the Lord will not listen to you, neither will he give ear to you on this day, so that you will not know succeed, now succeed in your wishes. And the sons of men approached in order to break unto the ark to come in on account of the rain, for they could not bear the rain upon them. And the Lord sent all the beasts and animals that stood around the ark and the beast overpowered them and drove them from that place. And every man went his way, and they again scattered themselves upon the face of the earth. So, you know, this really is kind of a sobering thing because we do see that parallel with the judgments that's coming, you know, during the day of the Lord when the Messiah returns, you know. And, uh, and so basically the moral of the story is we have had these 120 years, you know, similar in the fashion but jubilee cycles in my opinion, to return, to repent, and to follow the ways of Yah without having this judgment of impending complete utter destruction, you know, in our face. You know, of course, throughout history, you've had, you know, certain destructions and prophets that have come and said, repent. But, you know, how sad is it that people will wait until the day that they see him coming in the clouds, and then it'll be too late, you know? Then there will not be that opportunity to have had a faith developed within you before you saw it, you know, face to face, and before you were standing at judgment's door, you know, take this time, take this time now to repent and prepare your heart so that you're not those people standing at the ark going, let us in, we want to serve God now that we know we're going to die, you know, <laughs> instead, you know, maybe we should repent so that, you know, perhaps he'll have mercy on us and turn from the, the judgment that he, you know, might be intended for those who were transgressing against his commandments um, but at the same time this whole uh, passage really reminded me of the the parable of the the ten 
virgins, you know, the five wise and the five foolish. You know, the, the five wise were prepared. They had the oil in their lamps and they were able to go in and the, the five foolish, you know, they didn't have that oil and they, they didn't go in when the bridegroom came and they, they were at the door saying, let us in, let us in. Just like these people were at the door of the ark saying, let us in, let us in. And, uh, and you know, Noah turned them away and all of those people perished in the flood. And in the same way, at the in, during the day of the Lord, you're going to have people that you know, they're going to have hardened their hearts and they're not willing to repent from their wickedness. And so whenever you see the, you know, the son of man coming, you know, you know, coming for his bride or, or, you know, however things go down, whenever everybody realizes that they were wrong, all the people that rejected his, the truth of his word, that hardened their hearts, their every tongue will confess, you know, at, at some point. But, you know, how terrible will that be to wait till that moment to repent? So now's the day of repentance. But um, so I wanted to kind of, you know, talk about that. I think it's really interesting, um, the whole uh, account of Noah bringing into the ark uh, all these different animals. And how would that be possible? Well, I think it's it's likely that the garments that are later talked about in Jasher that uh, Nimrod eventually stole um uh, or uh, received from his father, um, who kind of inherited it, and it was it was stolen. These garments, these special garments, stolen by Ham from the ark. Um, and this specific garments are likely uh, the garments that, um, according to Jasher seven twenty four, says, and the garments of skin which God made for Adam and his wife when they went out of the garden were given to Cush. And it kind of goes into how. Uh, um, in, in Jasher 7, how eventually Nimrod inherited these garments, and he put those garments on when he was 20 years old, and there's certain, uh, you know, just different tra traditions and, and beliefs that these garments allowed uh, the dominion over animals, so that animals would come and bow themselves down to whoever had these garments on, and we know that that's, you know, partially what Adam's role was in the Garden of Eden, is he went and named all these different animals um, so it makes sense that, you know, they might have this kind of a, a control over the animal kingdom. And if Noah did have these special garments, according to the book of Jasher, uh, then perhaps that's why uh, he had such an easy time loading the animals onto the ark. And, uh, and so uh, I just wanted to put that out there because I, I think it's just a, a fascinating account of these special garments that were passed down from Adam. And... Um, and of course, you know, something in the traditional canon, you know, we're reading through the Torah portion, the, the dichotomy of the clean and unclean animals that were brought into the ark. You know, a lot of people don't recognize that uh, our traditional storybooks we all read as kids about Noah's ark, where he brought them two by two, uh, is not technically accurate. It, it actually records that Noah brought into the ark animals uh, of the clean nature, uh, two pairs of seven. So mm -hmm. uh, let me let me go up here and uh, and uh, point this uh, particular verse out for everybody because this is a you know a really good argument that Noah uh, before Mount Sinai you know and, and the patriarchs understood the difference between clean and unclean animals uh, the significance of what animals were considered you know worthy to be used for sacrifices you know perhaps this is passed down because we saw that. Um, Abel made sacrifices, you know, the firstlings of his flock, and he was a sheep herder. So this is a knowledge that absolutely was passed down from these righteous men, these patriarchs before the flood, and uh, and just more of a, a reasoning that the significance of the 
dichotomy between clean and unclean animals that is further expounded on in Leviticus 11 and the different commands that Moses gave to the children of Israel uh, is still a significant thing. It wasn't just some new ceremonial civil law of, oh, you know, don't eat, eat pork because that's a ceremonial thing I'll just have for the children of Israel. Rather, this seems to be a pre-existing um, concept that even all the way through Noah, uh, they understood. And it says um, in Genesis 6, at the end of chapter 6, And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort in the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Verse 20, of birds according to their kind, of animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing, of all the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in and to keep them alive. Also take you with you, uh, okay, <laughs> maybe you guys can help me with this reference. I must have skipped over the, um, uh, where it talks about me. clean and unclean. Yeah. Um, how many he brought seven of two pairs of the chapter seven, seven, two, it's in chapter seven. Yeah. Seven, two. Okay. I didn't keep going for enough. Uh, okay. So seven, two, it says, take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate and a pair of the animals that are not clean. So, sorry, I, I kind of started a little earlier there, but, um, you know, this is very clear that Noah understood the dichotomy between the clean and unclean animals. And, uh, and I find it interesting, people point at after the flood, when Noah is given this command of, hey, you know, the, you are able to now eat the flesh of animals and there'll be food for you, just as the, the herbs of the field were food. Um, I, I like to like put forward that um, if he decided, oh, I'm going to eat unclean animals because there were pairs of unclean animals, you then have an extinct animal line. You know, <laughs> if right off the ark, Noah's like, okay, bacon sandwich. You know, <laughs> you know. So, so I think there's a significance there that there was a larger number of clean animals given to Noah to take onto the ark because if it was allowed for mankind to start to consume animal flesh, uh, you know, possibly because the, the flood had destroyed all of the green vegetation and he had to have time to kind of cultivate the land, um, then it, it makes sense that there were more clean animals, which were later kind of the, the uh, animals that were said were okay for the consumption of man. And um, so anyways, um, Back to the flood, uh, I wanted to bring out that uh, in that same passage where I was talking about the, the sad aspect of them coming to the door of the ark and how that's likened to the whole parable of the five virgins that come and say, let us in, let us in. Well, um, I wanted to point out something in the Targum that I'd never seen before, and I stumbled across it. But it actually says in the Targum uh, that those who gather together, uh, it, it says in the... Um, the, uh, let me see here, the pseudo-Jonathan Targum, uh, but it says, and the giants were gathered there together with their sons and perturbed them, and afterwards the windows of heaven were open. So uh, I thought that was interesting because the Targum goes straight to, yeah, the people that were gathered saying, hey, let us in, we'll serve God now, were actually giants. Like there was a bunch of giants in that big 700,000 crowd of people, according to Jasher. Um, so, uh, now I want to get into, um, uh, an interesting aspect that ties into John chapter one. And, uh, and I wanted to just read John chapter one and, and you guys are going to see what's popping out to me in this particular passage that's recorded in the Targum. And, um, and this is a, you know, very well known and it says, 
uh, in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same in the beginning was with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended him not. Um, and so, you know, this whole, you know, an analogy given in the very beginning of John, referring to our Messiah, Yahushua, um, calling him the Word. You know, he's the Word made flesh. Well, uh, now I want to read to you um, this passage regarding the um, several instances uh, where um, the Lord is recorded remembering um, his word, and it kind of like phrases it in such a way as it's almost like it's the word that's making this covenant of peace with Noah. And so I wanted to go ahead and read this. Um, this is first started uh, uh, in uh, the account where Noah's in the ark, and he cries out because the flood is so crazy. Um, and it says in... Um, uh, so I'm going to start in Jash before I show this bit in uh, the Targum. But it says, And the ark, in Jasher 6.28, And the ark floated upon the face of the waters, and it was tossed upon the waters, so that all the living creatures within were turned like pottage in a cauldron. And great anxiety seized all the living creatures that were in the ark, and the ark was like to be broken. And all the living creatures that were in the ark were terrified. The lions roared, the oxen lowed, the wolves howled. And every creature in the ark spoke and lamented in its own language, so that their voices reached to a great distance. And Noah and his sons cried and wept in their troubles. They were greatly afraid, and they reached, and they reached the gates of death, so that they would had reached the gates of death. And Noah prayed unto the Lord and cried unto Him on account of this. And he said, "O Lord, help us, for we have no strength to bear this evil that has encompassed us. For the waves of the waters have surrounded us." Mischievous torrents have terrified us. The snares of death have come before us. Answer us, O Lord, answer us. Light up thy countenance toward us and be gracious to us. Redeem us and deliver us. You know, grace, redemption, deliver us. These are all things that the Messiah is accredited to, being our advocate before the throne. And the Lord hearkened to the voice of Noah, and the Lord remembered him. And a wind passed over the earth, and the waters were still, and the ark rested. And now we're going to look at this same account according to the Targum. And it says, And the Lord, in his word, remembered Noah and all the animals and the cattle which were with him in the ark. And the Lord caused the wind of mercies to pass over the earth, and the waters were dry. So the way it phrases this is it says, And the Lord, in his word, you know, the word was made flesh. He's our advocate, according to First John, uh, remembered Noah. And, uh, and so, you know, my, I'm under the perspective that anyone who is saved in the Old Testament was saved by Yahushua, just as those who are after him were saved by him. So, you know, it, it's, you know, this focal point in history where all redemption of mankind, all salvation, all mediation has to go through our Messiah, Yeshua, Yahushua. So um, that's why I wanted to point out how I focused on this word. And this becomes even more evident later on where it talks about the covenant of peace and the rainbow, right? And it says this in the Targum version, And I will remember my covenant, which is between my word and between you, and every living soul of all flesh, that there shall not be the waters of a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between 
the word of the Lord and every living soul of all flesh that is upon the earth. And the Lord said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have covenanted between my word and between the word for all flesh that is upon the earth. This is really fascinating to me because um, it really seems to like be emphasizing that it's the word, my word, that is making this covenant with Noah. And, you know, once again, just to reiterate, John 1, talking about the Messiah, in the mm -hmm. beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, with God, and the Word was God. So, I, I, like, I got really excited about that because um, it just seems to be more evidence of kind of that whole uh, concept of uh, the mediator has always been there. Um, and, of course, he came in the flesh to, you know, you know die on the cross and, and rise again. And uh, and restore that relationship between a, a you know perfect God and imperfect men, but it has always been the mediator interacting with man throughout history of mankind. Um, and I just I thought that the way the Targum said that was just so cool in regards to this covenant of peace that the rainbow represents. Which you know I want to talk about for a second because man, when you think about the current social political atmosphere of the western world specifically the united states i'm not going to use any specific terminology because i don't want to get us flagged but the rainbow people <laughs> are waving this sign of peace that basically represents that because of wickedness uh you know god re re resented making man and he's like i'm gonna have to destroy all these people because they're so wicked and um the rainbow people are using the sign of his covenant of peace saying I will not destroy you completely with the waters of a flood again and they're waving it in his face you know how how terrible of a thing is that that they're they're using this sign that got Yah promised to not utterly destroy the earth with water again um, due to the wickedness before the flood and they're taking this sign of a peaceful covenant and they have now championed it to represent something that is called an abomination and called an explicit sin in both the Old and New Testament and you know it's it's just really you know sad that you know uh, you know our culture has given up that sign of the covenant to the rainbow people that we have allowed them to start championing it to now you know uh, you know sometimes you know it's almost embarrassing to wear rainbow colors if you're a, a believer because you know that most people see that as a representation of this wickedness that is now kind of being, you know, pronounced as as good. You know, they'll call evil good and good evil, if that makes sense. Well, we're definitely seeing that in today's world. And it's really sad. Um, but, uh, you know, once again, you know, all of this kind of parallels those words of Yeshua where he says, as was the day of Zenoah, so will be com the coming of the Son of Man. You know, now we're having, you know, I find it interesting that you have in Kentucky uh, before all these crazy things and kind of the, the big movements and stuff started really taking headway. Uh, you literally had the Gen uh, Answers in Genesis guys built an actual Noah's Ark. So, <laughs> you know, if we are in the, the days leading up to the, the Great Tribulation or before the Day of the Lord, and Yeshua says, hey, it'll be likened to the days of Noah, well, we literally just built a life-size Noah's Ark. So, you know, I don't know if that's prophetic or just, you know, coincidence, but I think it's interesting. Um, so... Uh, just a few more really quick things here. Um, there's a really interesting account that 
Noah's graveyard that or Noah's vineyard that he created um, uh, was likely uh, grapes that were from the Garden of Eden. And it says in the in the Targum account that and he found a vine which the river had brought away from the Garden of Eden, and he planted it in a vineyard, and it flourished in a day, and its grapes became ripe. And he pressed them out, and he drank of the wine, and was drunken, and he made himself naked in the midst of a tent. And of course, this is where we have the whole account of the sin of Ham and stuff. Um, but uh, I, I thought that was really—I've never seen that before. But that was account in the Targum that. He actually found a branch left over from the Garden of Eden, hmm. and that's where he got his wine that made him all super drunk. And I can imagine the best grapes in the world are probably the grapes from the Garden of Eden, right? So no wonder he got so wasted. But, uh, um, you know, I thought that was really interesting. That that was recorded in the Targum that I came across today. And um, uh, Jake, before you continue, the, uh, some yep. people are asking, which Targum are you reading from? So this is particularly the uh, pseudo-Jonathan Targum, and I'm using Targum.info, the website Targum.info, and it has both the pseudo-Jonathan and the Targum Onkelos. Targum.info. Yeah. Onkelos. I was just discussing some of this with Zen on my show uh, this a couple days ago on Wednesday, the different Targums, because um, some are, are much later written much later than others but that is yeah, interesting the, the Pentateuchal Targums uh, it says this particular one I'm reading through was published back in 1862 and it had fragments from the Jerusalem Targum from the Chaldee so that's the little preface here at the top of the page so you're doing the, the Pentateuchal that's uh, the Torah the, so the Targum of the Torah that's the one you're looking at yeah yeah the Targum uh, on the website here there's two varying Targums that both are Pentateuchal Targums. Uh, the, the one I was drawing some of this stuff from was the Pseudo-Jonathan. Interesting. So, oh, that's cool. So, is Targum Pseudo-Jonathan, is it... Oh, I see. So, you just click on the text, Genesis 6... Uh, 6 through 11 there. 6 through 11. Oh, okay. Well, that's pretty cool. So um, that's a good resource to have. Oh yeah, yeah, it's it's really interesting. Um, I'm still, you know, of course, I'm still studying out the targums, weighing out the validity and, and right. uh, you know, how much of it is credible versus, you know, you know the, the various kinds. Um, I, I'm not fully educated on it, but you know, some of these things are just very fascinating. Um, and as long as they're not contradicting the text, you know, perhaps there's something to kind of glean from it. Yeah, for so, sure. Well, I mean, in the studies that I'm doing with Zen, he's bringing out all kinds of stuff that is, I'm like, what? And again, for people that are uh, watching this that don't know, there there is a difference between Targum and Talmud. We are not in support of the Talmud. <laughs> uh, that's the rabbinic Jewish commentary. Um, Targum, on the other hand, is a translation. So your King James Bible is a Targum. The Septuagint is a Targum. The Aramaic Targum predates the Septuagint. And that's what that's what I find most interesting. I don't believe Pseudo-Jonathan does. There's, and I asked Zen about this in, in the previous show. So if people want to go back to the archives on my YouTube channel uh, from, well, just 
one of the last videos I uploaded was the it was a live stream I did with uh, Zen Wednesday night on the Quest for Truth series that we're doing, uh, trying to understand the difference between the Uncolos and the Pseudo Jonathan, and there's several others out there. You know, some are written later in the AD time frame. I'm most interested in the Targum that was because the later ones have uh, embellishments to them that are uh, rabbinic commentary. So it's a Targum that acts sort of like a, a Talmud, I guess you could say, because it's, it's a Targum is in the sense that it's a translation, but it also has insertions of people's commentary put into it. So it's kind of like what people would say. We have the same thing today. We have the Schofield Reference Bible which is your King James Bible full of reference notes by Schofield. You know, uh, and there are many other Bibles of that nature that we have in English where we have the English translation, and below it, usually, or in the margins or something, we have uh, additional commentary by, you know, various people uh, today. So th that appears to be what's happening with some of these Targums, especially the later ones where we have the earlier Targums, at least as Zen understands it, and, as, and I'm trying to get educated on it myself, where they appear to be, you know, uh, direct translations like Ezra coming out of the Babylonian captivity started to translate there because the Hebrew language was being sort of usurped by uh, Aramaic at the time and then later Greek. So Hebrew was retained, but it was sort of the scholarly language. So it was the, the language of the scribes and Pharisees and the learned people. They retained the, the language of Hebrew. But the common folk, you know, coming out of Babylon were speaking Aramaic uh, and then, of course, later uh, Greek. And hence why we have these various translations. So as I understand it, I could be wrong, so don't take this to the bank or anything like that, but my, my understanding is after Babylonian captivity, Ezra took it upon himself to start translating like the Torah, which, and this is something that we maintain here at the Virtual House Church, is that the Torah, for those of you who are new here, was the Bible of the people in the Bible. So the people in the Bible, like the Bereans and, and the Thessalonians, where they were, hey, what's this crazy Paul, you know, what's he talking about? Well, they were, the Bereans were searching the scriptures daily. What were they searching? They weren't searching Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the other writings of Paul. They were searching the scriptures of their day, which were the Torah prophets and the writings and the Psalms, etc. But the Torah, the first five books of, of, of our Bible, was the Bible of the people in the Bible. So every time the prophets are basically all saying, hey, guys, we've gotten off the Bible. We got to get back. Like, that's pretty much what all the prophets are about. Hey, guys, we are not going by the Bible here, i.e. the five books of Moses. We need to get back or we're going to get judged for it. So there's always this call back to the Bible of the Bible, which was the Torah. So coming out of Babylon, they, you know, the language had changed and they want to have the just like the the the. Um, the purpose, supposedly, for the King James Bible, even though there were English Bibles already around at the time, um, the purpose was to have the Bible translated into the common language of the people. Well, that's essentially what Ezra was doing, the same thing. It's like, okay, we need to have the Bible in the common language of the people because the language has, has changed, you know, uh, and not as many people can read or understand Hebrew. So he took it upon himself to, to put it into Aramaic. Um, and, and what I'm trying to get, Uncolos and some of these names that we come across, th these are uh, names associated with individuals a lot of times that uh, created copies that we have today. So, and I could be totally wrong about this. I'm not telling people that what I'm saying is the absolute truth. This is just as I understand it, and I could be wrong. But my understanding is that I think the the Uncolos, or however you pronounce it, is the 
the first uh, copied translation of the Ezra translation, I think. And if, if that's true, that's, that puts you right around the first century time frame. I think uh, Unkelos or Unkelos or however you pronounce his name, uh, I think he lived from like 35 AD to whatever. Um, but I know that there was an Aramaic translation that predates the Septuagint. And the Septuagint shows up about 200-ish B.C., so we have an Aramaic translation that precedes 200 BC. And, and that's the one that I'm most interested in. And I'm trying to narrow it down to, to, to finding out exactly what, you know, what version that we have online today is that version. Because from my understanding of it, and Zen's trying to help me with this also, and he's looking into it as well, is it doesn't contain so much commentary. Uh, it's, it's more of a... I hate to say literal word-for-word translation because I, I don't see that it is. It seems to be a paraphrased translation. So like what we might consider like the New Living Translation of our English Bible today is not a literal word-for-word. It's a thought-for-thought uh, general translation. Um, and And if that's the case, what I find very fascinating about that particular uh, Targum is how it does elaborate on some things for us. Like Genesis four one, Genesis four one is like was was like my anti serpent seed trump card because King James right I grew up in King James read just to read Genesis four one and Adam knew his wife and she gave birth to Cain done deal right not if you read the Targum <laughs> if you read the Targum it significantly unpacks that event and and explains why she said I have begotten a child of the Lord that's what she says uh, uh, so. The Targum unpacks that and helps you understand that. And and Zen points out, too, that the word is like everywhere. And the word is understood in the context that you just brought out, uh, Jake, of Genesis, uh, excuse me, John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. right? And it was that word that became flesh and dwelt among us that we know as Yeshua, Jesus Christ. And that in the Targum, the logos, the word, the person that is the word is all over the place in the Targum and it's kind of scrapped when we get later to the Masoretic text and whatnot that we get you know some of our English translations from so I just wanted to kind of clarify some of that stuff I mean I think sometimes we use these languages we use these words that maybe newbies new people here aren't familiar with so uh, forgive me for interrupting I just wanted to bring out a little bit of an elaboration on that this is a great resource that, that Jake has shared with us here I will put this in the um, chat room for people to do their own research. And like we tell you before, we're not your teachers here, guys. We are students just like you. We are learning just like you are. So this is a collaborative learning process that we're going through here. And I love finding resources like this that can help us along in that journey. So anyway, just wanted to insert that, Jake. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no problem. I think that's really important is to kind of break down these different texts and how credible, how much weight we should give to them, what the process of the scholarship behind them is, because, um, you know, they are really interesting, the things that they expound on that we see in the traditional 66 canon, and, and that's why I'm so fascinated by, you know, these little nuances, um, and man, I'm, I'm really getting excited about this whole uh, recording of the word, you know, throughout the Targums, uh, because I want to study that out, uh, because... You know, we do know that the Bibles that all of us have today are probably the Bible of Ezra. You know, like, 
any translation all had to come through Ezra because all of the scrolls had been lost. They had been all destroyed. And we know for a fact that it was Ezra that was inspired uh, by Yah to rewrite. And he had all the, you know, had his scribes and they, they basically wrote out, I think it was, I uh, can't remember the exact number. It was like 90 plus books or something. And, um, yeah. but, you know, different translations record that they, you know, wrote out more than, you know, the different numbers, but he, he recorded a lot of these books. Um, I, I wonder if it's he, you know, devoted it to memory and, you know, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit or whatever, he was able to just, you know, write it all out again. But uh, we all have the Bible of Ezra and, uh, you know, the Targums, uh, you know, at least the older ones that you're talking about, you know, if they trace back to these early editions of Scripture that Ezra the prophet would have written out, uh, that's significant, you know, that's significant to be able to look at. This was a, a contemporary writing to the days of Ezra when he rewrote all of the scriptures that we have. Um, and um, and so, anyways, uh, one last thing I wanted to bring out um, was in regards to uh, Nimrod and um, how there was a curse of servanthood placed on him. And in this particular Targum I was reading from says, And Noach awoke from his wine, and knew by relation of a dream what had been done to him by Ham his son, who was inferior in worth on account that he had not begotten a fourth son. So that's interesting. Uh, it was almost like they kind of bumped him down the totem pole because he's not you know, doing his duty, um, which is also interesting based on your theory, Rob, about uh, you know what it meant that Ham knew the nakedness of his father or saw the nakedness of his father and how in, in uh, the Torah we see a um, you know a correlation there with you know coming into the wife of your father is knowing his nakedness and so mm-hmm. if if Ham according to this Targum passage was looked at as inferior in worth because he didn't have another son, and he was trying to beget another son, then maybe you know that's an explanation to why he went into uh, the wife of Noah, knowing his father's nakedness. And so you know that's all just you know kind of you know expounding on that story based on some of the commandments talked about in the Torah. Um, but it says, uh, and Noah said, accursed is Canaan, who is his fourth son, a serving servant, a serving servant shall he be to his brethren. And of course, we know that Canaan was the uh, the ancestor of uh, Nimrod, and um, there's actually a reference to Nimrod and this whole dichotomy of how uh, Nimrod, a son of a servant who was cursed to be a servant, became a king. And according to uh, Proverbs thirty twenty two, which I've come to think is a direct reference to this whole uh, Nimrod, Nimrod rise to power, Proverbs thirty. 22 says under three things the earth trembles under four it cannot bear up a servant who becomes king a fool who is filled with food an unloved woman who marries and a maidservant who supplants her mistress and and in the context of this curse that was placed on uh, the descendants of Canaan uh, and how he will be a serving servant it's interesting that his descendant Nimrod I think is his grandson uh, became a king in the land. So literally, you have a servant who became a king, and according to Proverbs thirty twenty two, uh, under these three things the earth trembles. So <laughs> I thought that was really interesting, and um, and just how um, he was uh, a mighty hunter before the Lord. 
he was a hunter of the sons of men and their languages, and uh, and he had them all kind of gathering together. And um, uh, there's some interesting context in terms of like the Tower of Babel that I think is fascinating. Is that um, some of these uh, texts talk about how they were going to put a temple, a, a you know, an altar of worship at the very top of this tower, and that 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 altar was um, in some like it, like they were going to put an idol of it and put a sword in the hand of the idol so that people would not come to bring war and battle against that kingdom um, because uh, according to uh, Jasher and according to some of these targums it talks about how uh, they didn't want uh, they, they wanted to subdue the whole earth they didn't want people warring against their you know one world you know kingdom and so you know it's just really interesting that this is how they were trying to subdue the earth was through this system of worship that they were placing on top of this tower and you know there's a direct parallel with the epic of Gilgamesh uh, which is these ancient Sumerian tablets that record this you know this guy Gilgamesh who wanted to ascend and make war with the God of heaven and uh, and if this is the historical Nimrod which I believe there's a, a amazing correlations with Gilgamesh and this Nimrod character uh, then this truly is the first man post-flood that uh, attempted to ascend himself to godhood. And this, uh, you know, dastardly plan of his to make himself a god in the eyes of all these people uh, was his way of bringing peace to earth, right? And so that was uh, one of the reasons that, you know, he is an absolute uh, foreshadow to the Antichrist and possibly is the Antichrist that we we're gonna see come back again, you know, according to some of your research, Rob, um, and uh, it, it just just really interesting. Um, but in Jasher, it talks about how um, when Abraham was born, uh, supposedly there was a sign in the sky. Um, there was like a star thing that happened, and all the wise men that were feasting with Terah uh, went and told Nimrod. And so there's this interesting account of how. Nimrod sought to destroy and kill uh, Abram because it was prophesied that Abram was going to become this great nation, and uh, and that, that he was going to, you know, uh, you know, basically, you know, overpower and, and take, you know, and be stronger than what Nimrod is. And so there's this, you know, interesting account in Jasher where it talks about how, you know, they they gave him a different baby, and Nimrod killed the baby, and forgot all about this prophecy about Abraham, who would become Abraham. Um, but this is absolute antichrist parallels. Like, mm-hmm. throughout Scripture, you see all of these uh, kings that parallel an antichrist figure, such as Pharaoh, in the time of the Exodus, killed the firstborns, of, you know, the, the male sons of uh, the children of Israel. You know, it's, it's almost like this spirit of antichrist just can't help but to kill babies. And, you know, it's just terrible. And, um, and there was also a, another interesting parallel that was brought out in, uh, in this, uh, in this uh, Targum account that is once again another uh, parallel to um, uh, the Antichrist uh, archetypes that we have throughout Scripture. Uh, and the example is, uh, towards the end of this passage, if you guys have clicked on that link uh, that I'm reading through this uh, pseudo-Jonathan Targum, it says that these are the generations of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran begot Lot. 
and it was then it was then when Nimrod cast Abram into the furnace of fire because he would not worship his idol and the fire had no power to burn him and that Haran's heart became doubtful saying if Nimrod overcome I will be on his side but if Abraham overcome I will be on his side and uh, and this is really interesting just you know let's just take it for you know face value of course um, you know let's do some further study into how you know verifiable this particular Targum is but this is the, the same story of King Nebuchadnezzar putting you know Shadrach Meshach and Abednego into the burning furnace and them being protected from the fire by the angel of the Lord, you know, the fourth that appeared in them. Um, and, uh, and you know, of course, we know that this is a direct correlation with the, you know, the cause to, the command to go forth and worship the image of the beast that the Antichrist will be doing. You know, Nebuchadnezzar did that same thing. He's like, hey, when the trumpet blows, bow down and worship my idol. And we know the Antichrist is going to say, you know, worship my, the image of the beast and, and uh, and so you know, just an interesting thing here that is this is a a you know a likely account of uh, supposedly Nimrod casting Abraham into a furnace of fire. Uh, one, this is a precursor to that whole scene that we see recreated with Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, but how interesting uh, that you know, there's more and more aspects of Nimrod that are paralleling uh, an anti. Christ figure and uh, and that's pretty much it guys I know I kind of went on a while there but thanks for listening to my musings so. well, not at all that's that's really good stuff man uh, so I'll, I'll pipe in and share a few things myself and I know uh, Juan Carlos you had a few more things you wanted to share and certainly welcome any uh, commentary you have on what Jake has said also um, in the meantime let me switch back over here um, to the, I forgot to mention this. As far as the um, mobile-friendly one, this is how the this shows it. Uh, th- th- like if you're looking at the website on your phone, there's a box at the top right here, and you click on that, and that brings the pop-out menu right here. So uh, th- that's how this is much more responsive for if you're looking at this like you know on a phone or other mobile device. And of course, if you're looking on a computer, it expands. Um, this is mirrored uh, on this website. Also, so the same content is on both. So either way, if you scroll down uh, while you were talking, I added uh, some timeline charts to this page here that people have seen me refer to before, and I was surprised. I didn't think I had this on any website, and I was like, well, I might as well put it up there. So uh, two timeline charts here. You can click on them to enlarge. This is the 350 post-flood years of Noah's life chart and you know it gives a timeline of immediately after the flood which is the, this is the time period we're in right now with this this week's Torah portion is essentially this this chart right here um, there's another chart below that the Nimrod Abraham timeline that goes further it goes all the way to the death of, of Nimrod at the hands of Esau and uh, you can click your mouse to zoom in um, some interesting things in the Joshua account, as you pointed out in the Targum, Jake, that there's this whole deal where when Abram's born, there's a sign in the heavens that takes place. And Nimrod's magi see it. It's almost, it's very much a parallel of Yeshua that there's, you know, the the, the star that the magi followed, right? That there, in, the, in the case of Abram being born, there was, a, there was a sign that took place in the heavens that they interpreted and said, ooh, this is not good. This means that Terah's son, Terah just had... 
given, you know, his wife had given birth to Abram, that this is a bad omen, that uh, the, the son of Terah will kill Nimrod. So Nimrod's like, well, we got to kill the babies then, you know. And, you know, just same thing with, with Herod, got to kill the babies, right? So he sends this edict through the land to that uh, Terah's son was to be killed. And Terah took uh, a newborn that was also born in his household to, I guess, a handmaiden or somebody, um, concubine or whatever, and uh, had that baby killed. And then Abram was hidden away, uh, initially, I believe, in a cave, and then he, w- he later went to hide with uh, Noah and Shem for a while until uh, Noah died and, you know, he was still with uh, Shem. But he was in the house of Noah and Shem at the time of the confusion of the languages at the Tower of Babel. He pops up after that. And Nimrod has another dream that there's this this egg and this bird pops out of the egg and, and plucks his eye out. And the interpretation of that dream was that it it meant that uh, he was going to die at the hands of uh, an offspring of Abram, and th- and I believe there's another uh, time that his other eye is plucked out, and it's a t- uh, a sign of of the end times. And um, I have let's see, Joshua nine when Abram came. Let me see. Let me go back. Uh, I'm going to read this portion right here because I find it fascinating as it pertains to Nimrod and the end times. Um, in Joshua 8, shortly after the birth of Abram, Nimrod's conjurers saw a sign in the heavens which led them to believe Terah's son and or his offspring will kill him. For this reason, Abram is hidden away from Nimrod inside a cave for 10 years. Then in 1958 AM, or a year since creation, I think it's uh, Anumundi or something like that, year since creation. So 1958 years from the time of creation. We see in Joshua 9, when Abram came out of the cave, he went to Noah and his son Shem. So when he's 10 years old, he came out of the cave and went to Noah and Shem. And he remained with them to learn the instruction of the Lord and his ways. No man knew where Abram was, and Abram served Noah and Shem, his son, for a long time. Abram was in Noah's house 39 years, and Abram knew the Lord from three years old. He went in the ways of the Lord until the day of his death, as Noah and his son Shem had taught him. Then I insert here, shortly after Abram returns to Ur, Nimrod throws him into a fiery furnace, which is what you read there, Jake, from the Targum, uh, in 1998 AM. So I, these dates, I began to wonder, like, is there a correlation between the the time from creation, the first Adam, and the times it, that we have in AD uh, since the time of the second Adam? So you have AM from first Adam and AD from second Adam. If there are correlations to these to these years, you know, 1948, 1998, etc., but Yahuwah saves him, and it's a pretty cool story. It's very much like the Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego scenario where the, the Son of Man's walking with him in the fire, preserving them. Two years later, when Abram is 52, Nimrod has a dream which is interpreted by his servant Anuki, and that's in Joshua 12, and, in verse 55. And that which thou sawest of the river which turned to an egg at the, as the fir- at the first, and the young bird plucking out thine eye, this means nothing else but the seed of Abram, which will slay the king in latter days. So, you know, the all-seeing eye that we have on the back of our dollar bill that the Illuminati is all about, there's reason to believe that, that Nimrod 
lost an eye, and I believe it was his left eye, as indicated like in the bust of Sargon, which some say has a correlation to Nimrod also. And so I have the bust of Sargon here missing his left eye, and behind him I have the all-seeing eye on the back of the dollar bill, which is a left eye. Um, and then I saw an interesting uh, parallel scripture to the Joshua account in Zechariah chapter 11. Woe to the worthless shepherd that leaveth the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. His arm shall be clean dried up and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. In the dream of Anuki, the losing of his eye represents death. And so I believe when Esau cut his head off, perhaps, you know, maybe when his head fell to the ground, it hit a rock or something and plucked out his eye or gouged out his eye. or At some point he lost his left eye. And that indicated his first death at the hands of the offspring of Abram. But Zechariah talks about a worthless shepherd who's going to have his right eye utterly darkened. And I, I believe that also in the prophecy of Anuki that uh, in the latter days, that's a reference to Enoch's, I mean, excuse me, uh, Nimrod's second defeat. And Nimrod became king of the world at the time in 1948 a.m., and a lot of people look at 1948, and they will try to use Isaiah 66, 8. Can a nation be more than a day? Yep. May 14th or whatever, 13th, May 14th, 1948. And they'll talk about that plot of land on the other side of the pond that we call Israel right now. And some will try to justify that as, you know, the time of Abram. Because Abraham, or Abram, uh, was born. Let me just go back to this. Uh, yeah, Na Abram. Abram was born in 1948 a.m. So the year that Abram was born, that was the year Nimrod was made king. And when I look at that plot of land over there calling itself Israel, I don't see it as a fulfillment of Isaiah 66, 8. Because four verses later, in Isaiah 66, 12, it says that peace is going to flow like a river from that place. Well, we've had anything but peace since 1948. And even worse than that is Isaiah 66 is in the context of of the previous chapter, chapter 65. Now, we have to keep in mind that when these texts were written, they didn't have chapter and verse. It was one complete thought. We, much later, assigned chapter and verse, and, and in our Western mindset, we think new chapter, new thought. That's not the case. There was no chapters and verse. So if you read what we call chapter 66 and verse 8 in the context of what was previously stated in 65, that's in a millennial reign context. That's when if somebody dies at 100 years of age, he's considered a child. That's where the wolf lays down with the lamb. That's millennial reign context when new Israel is regathered, when Yahuwah himself gathers his people from the, uh, the farthest reaches of the earth and brings them all in a greater exodus. It's Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 30, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 37, the entire book of Hosea, you know, Isaiah 65 and 66. That has not happened yet. That's why I maintain that in 1948, that thing is a counterfeit. And all you have to do is look into the Zionists and the Freemasons and the statues. They even have a statue of Nimrod in the Hebrew University there. That, that everything about 1948 A.D. seems to be honoring the event of 1948 A.M., that being the rebellious one being made king of the world. It's a counterfeit, all-seeing eye Illuminati deal. So that's when you're talking about uh, Freemasons, Illuminati, Rothschilds, you know, Zionists, and all that stuff. Uh, that's why I don't, you know, I, when people say support Israel, yeah, I get that. I do support Israel. But the question is, who slash what is Israel? And for me, it's not the plot of land over there that was established in 1948. It's us. 
It's those who are grafted into the cultivated olive tree. It's everybody who, who has fallen into the paradigm of the book of Hosea as elaborated on by Paul in Romans chapter 7 through 11. Cultivated olive tree, Israel. Don't believe in the Messiah, branch broken off. Do believe in Yeshua, Messiah, even if you're not of the cultivated olive tree ethnically, if your blood does not go back to Jacob, then great, you're a wild olive tree over here, and your branch gets broken off of the wild olive tree and grafted into what? The cultivated olive tree that is Israel. So I support Israel, but it's important for me to identify who Israel is that I'm going to be supporting. I don't support Zionism. I don't support the Rothschilds. I don't support Freemasonry. I don't support the Illuminati. You know, I, I don't support any of that. So um, I just wanted to bring bring that out. And going back to, to the, the website here, you can click on those just as I've done and view them on your computer. You can print them out also. Or if you really want a higher resolution version of them, you can click right here. Click on that for a, um, a higher resolution. You can get those online right there. And they're 300 DPI files that you can take to a printer, like a Staples or Office Max or someplace, and they'll print them off for you. And they come out to be uh, three feet, about three feet long. So they're pretty sizable uh, charts for you to check out. Uh, I did want to address a few things. Let me see if there's anything else in here that I want to... Oh, um, the, the 120 years deal. Um, Genesis 6.3 talks about 120 years. And it is interesting that 120 jubilees do come out, you know, for this timeline that we would... If, if we believe we're in a 7,000-year timeline, that we have 6,000 years of work to be done in a seventh millennial reign timeline that makes sense i but i'm not of the opinion that genesis 6 3 is talking about that unless it's a dual fulfillment i mean there's always the possibility that you know as we've talked about many other things in scripture that it can have dual meaning um i believe contextually uh, you know dual if there is 120 jubilees that's great that's cool it's fascinating that's interesting um uh, although when you look into the Septuagint timeline, it's very different from the Mesoretic timeline, and we're well past 6,000 years at this time. Because according to the Septuagint timeline, it was 5,500 years from Adam to Yeshua. In the Mesoretic timeline, it's uh, 4,000 years. So, I mean, if, if you go with the Septuagint timeline, you might as well throw out any idea of 120 Jubilees meaning anything and the 7,000 years with the seventh being the millennial reign rest of Christ. And uh, frankly, I'm struggling with that. I don't know what to do with it. I, I see it, Dr. I'm uh, not Dr. Uh, my friend um, Doug Woodward has uh, done a whole series analyzing the Bible, and I think his series is called uh, Rebooting the Bible. And he's been bringing out the notable differences of the Septuagint versus the Mesoretic text. And... So so many people who do timelines and stuff like I do have done it off of like their King James Bible off of the Masoretic text. But as soon as you start bringing in the Septuagint, you're like, okay, <laughs> what do I do with all this stuff? Uh, and frankly, I'm in the I don't know mode. So take it for whatever you want. But contextually speaking, when I look at Genesis 6-3, I believe it's talking about the the last 120 years leading up to the flood, that everything about Genesis 6 uh, is in a pre-flood context. And that when you go back, and, and you can look at these two charts that I have, uh, on if, if you ha have already opened up the pages for this, the study page, hit refresh because I added that while Jake was talking. So 
um, it may not be on your screen unless you refresh. So if you refresh your browser, you should be able to see both the timelines that I showed uh, here and um, larger versions of these right here. So you have the Genesis 6 experiment, what I call a Genesis 6 experiment happening in the days of Jared. His name means shall descend or descended. Well, that's when Enoch says the watchers descended. The, the watchers descended in the days of Jared. So his name is reflects what took place during his the time of his birth, uh, which best as I can figure out, and again, my timelines are going off the Masoretic uh, timelines, uh, is 3550 B.C. This may change if, if I was to go back and look at all these things from the Septuagint timeline, but at any rate, this is the timeline that I'm... As Zach Bauer says, this is the horse I have in the race at the moment. <laughs> uh, so that event took place in 3550 B.C., Enoch tells you that the first generation Nephilim offspring of the angels would only live for 500 years and they would kill each other off in a massive civil war that the Greeks later stylized into what became known as the Clash of the Titans. And Josephus reckons the first generation Nephilim, uh, he, he reckons them as the Titans of Greek mythology. So you go forward from 3550 BC, 500 years, you have the death of Adam that happens roughly 3114 BC, uh, in here, no, that's the count, the Mayan calendar. So first, you have the death of Adam about 25 years or so before the Mayan calendar, Aztec calendar stone, showing up at 3114 BC, and then about 20 years after that, or or so, right in this time period, this is where you have the death of the first generation Nephilim, right, right here. So you have Adam's death, the Mayan calendar, and then the uh, the end of the Clash of the Titans. First generation Nephilim are dead, and then somewhere in the vicinity of about 20 to 50 years or so in there, the watchers are judged, bound, and buried, and then Enoch is raptured. And then we have a time of peace. Lamech's name means despairing. Well, Lamech was born during the Clash of the Titans, so it's no wonder his daddy you know, named him despairing. That was a pretty rough time to be living and born during. And Noah was born uh, about 78 years, I believe, after all of that took place, and his daddy, Lamech, names his son Rest. And uh, it was a time of peace and rest from the corruption. And so I began to wonder, okay, if the event of the Genesis 6 experiment was judged by God by roughly 3000 B.C., why did he wipe out the whole world with a flood? You know, uh, that's like 700 years before the flood. Well, it was because of the activity of men. Angels were judged, bound, and buried. Yahuwah judged the angels for what they did, and the offspring judged each other. The offspring killed each other off. And so th there was a severe judgment on the event of the Genesis 6 experiment that took care of the root cause of the problem, the angels, that left their first estate that Jude and Peter talk about. They were bound in Tartarus. So they're judged, bound, and buried. Okay, check. That's been done. The offspring, which was the result of that, w killed each other off. Now, I believe that they, in that 500 years time period created more offspring. And so, and the reason I believe that is because in multiple mythologies, you have multi-tiers of gods. You you have the, even in the um, Hebrew text, you have the, um, the the great giants, the Nephilim, you have the Agigi, uh, the Eljo. In the Greek mythology, you have the Titans, you have the Olympians, the next tier down, and you have the demigods, below the Olympians, a tier down below that. So you have what I call multi-tiered levels of gods, and I believe that can be traced back to this event right here, where you have 
the union of sky and earth, like in the Greek mythology, is very ethereal. You have, you know, heaven and earth mating and producing titans, earthbound ones. Um, and I believe what that is indicative of is the those from above that came down in the Hebrew account and mated with those who are, who are of earth. Heaven came to earth and mated and created titans. Titans mate with each other, create other titans, and Olympians, if they probably mate with humans, if titans mate with humans. And people ask, well, how can a giant mate with a woman of a normal size? And my take on that is that they just they grew at a normal pace. So... In other words, there's a gene in, in my genome that kicked in and said Rob Skiba stopped growing at five foot eleven when he was roughly 16 years of age. So when I, as soon as I reached five foot eleven, that gene kicked in and said, "Oop, stop! No more growth for you." Uh, and I believe with the Nephilim, that gene is either turned off or removed altogether, but they just keep going. So theoretically, then, if a person grows at a normal pace they would be uh, of the size, let's say, that would be compatible with a normal-sized woman to mate with her probably well into their 20s, you know, maybe even the 30s. Then they would get prohibitively too, too large to do that function <laughs> without getting graphic here. They, they would be too large to, for a normal-sized woman to handle them. So I believe that that's how the Nephilim were mating with normal women. And, and in this time, the Watchers, well... They realized the other watchers, we know that one-third followed Satan, said, well, that didn't work. Uh, you know, the, the judgment is so severe that Michael, the great archangel himself, looked down and said, no one's going to do that again. That's one of many reasons why I believe there's no multiple incursion. So if, if they they couldn't destroy mankind through the interjection of their seed, they would get man to do something else. And that's where we see in Joshua 428 and Jubilee 724 that in the latter days of Methuselah the last 120 years because Noah was to was a preacher of righteousness that preached repentance for 120 years well you can't repent of being born Polish or French or Spanish or whatever your ancestry is whatever whatever ancestry you are you can't repent of that so a Nephilim can't repent how can a Nephilim repent that's not their fault you know they can't repent of being born of angels or being born of Titans, or being born of Olympians. They can't repent of that. For Noah to have preached repentance, there had to be something for people to repent of doing that they could actually, in fact, repent of. And it's my contention that J Jubilees and Joshua tells you exactly what was happening in the last 120 years leading up to the flood, and that was the corruption of all flesh that came as a result of hybridization, blending species that were never meant to be blended blended together in the first place you know animals and humans animals and plants you know reptiles being bred with fish you know all kinds of stuff i mean it was pretty crazy what was happening and so for me genesis 6 3 where it says that my spirit would no longer dwell with man for his flesh and his days should be 120 years well he was flesh since the garden of eden what's going on there my belief about the 120 years is that scripture clearly tells us that Yahuwah created man in his own image, in his own likeness, in his own likeness. And so he did so in order that his spirit may dwell with man. How? When we accept Christ as our Savior, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us. Like dwells with like. He created our bodies to be in the image and likeness of himself as a temple for himself. But if you corrupt that image, as the title of Doug Hamp's book talks about, Corrupting the Image, 
and create something that is no longer in the image of the creator, well, his spirit says, I'm out of here. I can't, I can't dwell with that. You blended yourself with a goat. You're a satyr. I don't look like a satyr. That's not in my image. That's not in my likeness. So therefore, my spirit will no longer dwell with you. That's what I believe is taking place in uh, uh, Genesis 6-3. And of course, other resources, if you watch the videos on that page, I'm not going to you know, hog up the rest of the show talking about this because we certainly talked about it enough in previous uh, studies of Virtual House Church on this week's study. And of course, in lots of conferences and stuff that I've done. Um, let me see what else was there. Uh, in the study that I just did with Zen uh, this past Wednesday, there was... Um, he was reading, I don't remember if it was in the Targum or if it was in the writings of Abraham. I think it was, pretty sure it was in the writings of Abraham, that it talked about not only was Enoch raptured, but there was a city of Enoch, that he had a city, that he was ruling and reigning as king over, and that the whole city was taken up. That's the first time I ever heard of that. And you know, I don't know what to make of it. I don't know if it's true or not. I'm just telling you what the text said that he read. And I'm like, whoa. And it, that it is the city of of Enoch that was taken up from the earth that returns to the earth as the new Jerusalem. <laughs> I'm going, okay, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to, this is the first time I ever heard of it, so I'm going to have to go look at that a little deeper and try to, you know, vet this a little bit more. But I found that fascinating that the Enoch, his righteous city was taken up, <laughs> not just Enoch himself, and uh, that that's the city that comes back as the new Jerusalem. Now, this brings back an interesting thought because, uh, we see all through the Torah, especially in the Targum version, that it, that it is the word of the Lord doing things. And uh, Jake, you brought out the covenant between my word and all flesh. Th- that's interesting. It's not just the covenant be- between what I said and the people and the animals and, and all flesh. It's the covenant between the being, the entity that is the word. That's extraordinary. <laughs> the word that was made flesh. And when, when Yeshua, on the road to Emmaus, said that it said in the end of the Gospel of Luke that he began with Moses to tell them who he was. And I, I, it's a little difficult to find Yeshua, like in your King James Bible, in the Torah. I mean, you got to really dig for it. you got to look, and you got to see the parallels with the... Um, the Moedim, the, the feasts, and, and the various aspects of those things and how they relate to Yeshua. You've you got to really look for all that, but if you look in the Hebrew and you see things like the Aleph Tav, now some just think that's a direct object marker. The the dog chased the cat. You know, there's the, the direct object and the action that's being applied to the direct object marker. That's a grammatical function that the Aleph Tav serves, but there, I forget how many hundreds of Aleph Tavs are what they call standalone olive tabs that don't serve the function as a direct object marker and grammar. And that when Yeshua says that I am, in Greek it says, I am the Alpha and Omega. Well, Alpha and Omega is the Greek of Aleph and Tav. And so when you realize, when he says that in Revelation chapter 1, he says that I am the Alpha and the Omega, he says that in the context of, I think, think it's a... Zechariah 12.10, I believe, is, is the reference where it says that every eye shall see him and they who pierced him shall mourn. He's quoting Zechariah. Well, if you look at the Zechariah text in the Hebrew, it says he looked on uh, him whom they pierced. It's him, Aleph Tav, whom they pierced. So he's quoting in Revelation chapter 1, he's quoting Zechariah 12.10, and he's saying, I am the Aleph Tav. 
of Zechariah 12.10. And if he's the Aleph Tav of Zechariah 12.10, is he also the Aleph Tav everywhere else in Scripture? And I maintain, yes, he says he is. So when you look into the Hebrew, you'll see that he's all over the place, and he's certainly all over the place in the Torah, and it takes it a step further if we take the Targum and we take, as Jake pointed out, the in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us of John chapter 1, and see that he is the Word that is doing creation, that is doing the covenant making with people, that he is the Word of the Lord that appeared to to uh, Moses on Mount Sinai. And he conversed with the word face-to-face as one speaks with a friend. It, and, you know, it clearly says that Moses spoke with Yehoah face-to-face as one speaks with a friend. And then he says, hey, can I see your face? And what does Yehoah say? No, you can't. Nobody could see that and live. What's going on there? Well, I believe it's because he was conversing with the word. He's conversing with Yeshua. In the covenant that was made at Mount Sinai was between Yeshua and his bride that is Israel. And when he said, I want to see all of you, what did he do? He put he put Moses in the cleft of the rock and covered him what? With his right hand, which all through the scriptures, it says that my right hand is my salvation. Yahuwah says that. My right hand is my salvation. What is salvation in Hebrew? Yeshua. So <laughs> he covered him with Yeshua. So you can imagine the word of the Lord, Yeshua, covering, you know, Moses in the cleft of the rock until the, all the glory of the rest of the body of Yahuwah passed by and then Moses was able to get a peek of the back of Yahuwah as he passed by him. So I, I think this is extraordinary. I think this is where, and this is, you know, Zen's really been hot on this, talking about this and how significant this is. And his son, uh, Justin, I believe, has also been doing a lot on this, is doing the study in the Targum of everywhere the word of the Lord shows up. And and have the Genesis, excuse me, the John one mindset when we look at that, because then the scriptures are going to really like poof, explode for you in terms of meaning. And in Revelation chapter twenty, it says, "Behold, the new Jerusalem, the city that's coming down from the above." Uh, abo- it was a twenty or twenty-one. I always forget which chapter it is. Uh, maybe it's twenty-one. Whatever. It's either twenty or twenty-one. When the angel says, "I will show you the bride, the bride of the Lamb," and he shows him the new Jerusalem. So there's an interesting group out there that, that's claiming that Christ is only married to the city. And I'm like, yeah, but what is the city? What is the New Jerusalem? What is, you know, the, what is the only bride that we have in Scripture of any significance is Israel. It's the bride that was married at Mount Sinai that was divorced in Jeremiah chapter 3 and that it was redeemed by the groom by the events of the first century in the time of the Passion of Christ. Um and New Jerusalem is defined by what? The 12 gates of who? Israel. Yeshua's not marrying brick and mortar and gold streets. He's marrying a people. And that people is called Israel. Um, I, as I understand, there's going to be an interesting debate on that tomorrow. Are you going to be participating in that debate or a roundtable, Jake, tomorrow? Yeah, the uh, <laughs> the idea that we actually married uh, or or that the Messiah marries brick and mortar rather than making a covenant with people. A marriage like in covenant with the people. So it'll yeah. be interesting. I, I don't understand that mentality. I, I'm, I may, or I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to participate in that. I'm, I might, if I can find the time, if I feel like sticking my head in that bee's nest uh, <laughs> tomorrow. But uh, those are just some thoughts I had. Let's see. What else did I have? Oh, uh, as the days of Noah were, 
let's switch over to Matthew 24. It's part of the New Testament portion that goes along with this. Matthew 24, 37 through 39 says, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Who gets taken away here, guys? Who's taken away? The bad guys are taken away. Good guys stay. Who goes first, wheat or tares? Tares go first. Wheat stays. So when you think about, you know, rapture, pre-trib rapture, right, the book left behind, sorry, that book is an error. The whole premise is wrong. You want to be left behind. Bad guys taken away. Good guys stay. <laughs> this is the earth. Earth is our place. Bad guys go. Good guys stay. They stay in a preserved in an earthbound place of safety. I do believe there's a rapture. I just happen to believe it's on the last day, as Scripture clearly tells you. Paul tells you point blank that the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with him. You know, amen. When are the dead in Christ raised? Revelation chapter 20. After the tribulation. There's only one first resurrection, folks. And Revelation chapter 20 tells you when the resurrection is. Paul tells you the rapture is not going to be precede the dead in Christ rising. Dead in Christ rise first. When did the dead in Christ rise? After the tribulation. Where do those go that are alive and remain? Paul says we meet them, we meet Yeshua in the clouds. When does Yeshua say he's going to be in the clouds? Prior to this, in Matthew 24, well, let's just go there. Matthew 24, 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Guys, it can't be any more clear. This is this, this not interpretation. This says what it says. Shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming where? In the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And what does he do when he appears in the clouds? He sends angels with the sound of the trumpet. What does Paul say? The sound of the trumpet. The trump shall sound, and, and you know we shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Right? That happens right here, sound of a trumpet. And they shall, what? Gather together. That's the gathering together is the harpazo. The gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. He gathers his people at the sound of the trumpet into the clouds after the tribulation of those days, <laughs> after the dead in Christ rise first. It can't be more clear. I don't know how much clearer it could be than that. It only takes a theologian to screw it up. Scroll down a few verses later, and he says, you know, that that as the days of Noah would be. Oh, by the way, they also people use this in the pre-trib rapture camp. But of that day and hour knows no man, right? We don't know. Only the Father knows. Jesus doesn't even know when he's coming back. Well, <laughs> he says right here, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass until all these things be fulfilled. Now the preterist will say that this is talking about this generation that was living at the time that Yeshua said that, so the disciples and the people living at that day. And I believe there is a dual fulfillment there. I believe that is true, that the, the generation will see these things, but there's a greater fulfillment of these things that takes place. And so uh, for the dual fulfillment side of it, I would say that the generation that sees all the things that take place above, th they're not going to pass until these things be fulfilled. Um, and then he says kind of a new thought right here. 
He says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. But of that day, what day? What's the antecedent? The day heaven and earth passes away. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall, pass, shall not pass away. But of that day, what day? The day heaven and earth pass away, no man knows. Not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So when does all of the heaven and earth pass away? Only the Father knows that. That has nothing to do with the rapture. Um, so what was going on in the days of Noah? You, you have to ask yourself, what differentiates the days of Noah from any other time in human history? Because if you look at the other signs of the times, the, the disciples asked him, hey, you know, what, what's going to be the signs of the end of the world and your coming and all that? And, and first of all, by the way, folks, a rapture is a physical leaving off the ground the, uh, into the sky, like Enoch did, like Yeshua did. Yeshua physically rose off the earth at his ascension and went up into the clouds. And that's what's going to happen in a rapture. We, f we fly up into the sky like Superman. So the disciples asked him, what's going to be signs of your coming? Don't you think a massively huge sign to mention would be, hey guys, when you see a whole bunch of people flying up into the sky to meet me in the clouds, that's going to be the first indicator uh, that the rest of the time is going to really stink. <laughs> you're going to have all this other stuff happens. But guess what, guys? He didn't mention that. So if you're the mindset, well, he's only talking to the Jews there. He's not talking to the church. That's a misnomer because the church is Israel, and Jews are part of Israel. Uh, if they don't accept Yeshua, their their branch is broken off. If they do accept Yeshua, they're, they're grafted back in. Uh, but let's say, let's go with the mindset of replacement theology, which is what dispensation theology really is. If you believe that there's a separation between Israel and the church, and that he's only talking to the Jews here, Israel, uh, in Matthew 24, then Yeshua said, said, well, when you see all of my followers flying up into the sky, then you Jews, yeah, guess guess what? The next seven years are really going to stink for you, or however many years of tribulation is. He didn't say that. There's no mention of a rapture in here except for a gathering together after the tribulation of those days where he goes in the clouds. As it pertains to the days of Noah, we have to ask ourselves what differentiates the, the days of Noah from any other time in human history. And I've been showing you guys that. That's, that's this stuff. This is what differentiates the days of Noah, all 950 years worth of the days of Noah. Noah lived for 950 years, right? So it's the 600 years before the flood and the 350 post-flood years of Noah's life. That's what's going on in the days of Noah. So what's happening in, in uh, who's getting married and eating and drinking and giving in marriage and stuff like that? Well, Jake told you that, you know, we're talking about hybrids. We're talking about giants. They were gathered together at the flood. It was business as usual for them before that. They're all hanging out, doing their thing, getting married, taking women, drinking, eating, being merry. And then the flood came and wiped them all away. So uh, that's my take on that. And let's see, one other thing before I turn it over, or two two things actually. Uh, Jake brought out uh, Enoch 105, where it talks about uh, uh, Noah being born as an albino. That's rather interesting. Most people don't think of that. And if he's an albino, what color do you think his children end up being? I'll just throw that out there. Just think about it for a little while. Um, <laughs> Noah was an albino. Uh, and Juan Carlos, you mentioned a one-year tribulation period. And I, I confess I struggle with that. I've, I've listened to Steve Mutria's teaching on it and several times, actually. 
And I understand, you know, except those days be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened is one of the um, reasons they'll give for for justifying the one-year tribulation period. I really struggle with that because there's so many other passages that specifically mention a number of days that 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 would that would uh, at least in my mind contradict other scriptures, and I don't see scripture contradicting itself. Um, where it says specifically that there are two witnesses that prophesy for three and a half years, 1260 days. And at the end of their 1260 day testimony, unless you don't consider that tribulation. Now in the standard dispensational preacher rapture camp and in most eschatological circles that subscribe to a seven year tribulation period, they'll do so largely off of the Daniel timeline, the 70th week of Daniel, which I'm not on that page anymore. I don't look for the 70th week in our time, I believe that the 70th week was fulfilled at the time of Yeshua in his first coming. So I'm, I am not basing my idea of a seven-year tribulation period on Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks. It's interesting, but I'm not on that page. <clears throat> I base my understanding of a seven-year tribulation period based on what's written in Revelation about two witnesses, and I believe that they're two individual people, that are witnessing and, and, and doing miracles, signs, wonders, and all that stuff for 1260 days, three and a half years, and at the end of their testimony, the bottomless pit is opened, according to Revelation chapter 9, chapter 13 and 17, the beast comes from the bottomless pit. So he's not Trump, he's not Obama, he's not anybody walking the earth right now, he's coming up from the bottomless pit if words mean things. In Revelation chapter 17, words clearly say the beast comes up out of the bottomless pit. When is the bottomless pit open? Revelation chapter 9 at the fifth trumpet which I believe is at the end of the testimony of the two prophets. He comes out first order of business. He kills the two prophets, and then the beast rules and reigns for the remaining 1,260 days, uh, which is three and a half years. So um, that's why I believe there's a seven-year tribulation period. I'm curious as to how you, Steve, and others would get around that to justify a single-year tribulation period. So I will end my discussion with that <laughs> and turn the floor over to you Juan. sure sure Rob, and thank you actually you know the what i what i want to show is just a sure is a final reflection of the of the portion but the, before i would like to to comment some of some of the points that uh, jake and you wrote uh, absolutely wrote yeah so uh, you know, as part of my, my studies of the last days, I, I got to a conclusion regarding Isaiah chapter 66 that you, you were mentioning, Rob, about the, the birth of a, a nation. But for sure, this is not what happened in 1948 with the state of Israel. Mm-hmm. What he's talking about is the rebirth of the, the people of Yahuwah, is the nation of Yahuwah, and we know that this is the 12 tribes. And we are just waiting for this massive and second great, second great exodus. That's going to be the moment that the, the, the nation will be will be revered. So so reborn. So 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 I totally agree with you on this, and I, I think it's important, you know, to, to to study this in this context. If we we read the entire chapter sixty six, we can understand how this is talk, talking about all the children of Yahuwah and connection with the Yerushalayim with Sion. So, so you know, it's important to understand and, and how, how to put all these pieces together that uh, the nation and the people of Yahuwah, the 12 tribes, is not only one. Um, uh, in regards of the, you know, the word of Yahuwah, that's an amazing topic. I think uh, great, uh, just with the fact that you brought this up, 
I think this is really important because we see all over the place how the word of Yahuwah came to different servants of the of Elohim during the past. And you know, there is something in addition, and and and, and it's important to to understand understand this in the proper way. Uh, there is multiple references as well in the in the Tanakh in the, in the Old Testament that is talking about the messenger Yahuwah, Malach Yahuwah, and if we read this in context, it's, it's similar when we see about the word of Yahuwah speaking, you know, when we see the the, the, the encounter uh, of the, the burning bush uh, between Moses and, and Yahuwah, was the messenger Yahuwah speaking through, through Moses. Moses. It was Yahuwah himself speaking to, to him. So so it's so amazing to understand this in this way that what Yahuwah was uh, present uh, with his people reflecting the appearing himself as the as as the messenger or even as the word of Yahuwah. you know the, this morning i was studying the, with the, with my kids and uh, some some kids around getting to, together during during shabbat just to teach them stories of the bible and we were speaking about the, the story of uh, abraham and the three messengers mm. and uh, we see the same that was one of them was Yahuwah. we will see this later on in the in the portions that are coming in the virtual house church so, so the connection about understanding the word of Yahuwah appearing and also understanding that this messenger, special messenger of Yahuwah being Yahuwah himself as well, is so fascinating and is something so important to study in deeper details to, to, to see in a more broader way what uh, what's the truth and what uh, Yahuwah is bringing to, to our life. Regarding the, the you know, the, the one-year tribulation, Rob, uh, what I what I said, and I truly truly believe as well as you as you said that it's not one year tribulation. What I'm doing is a, a differentiation between the tribulation and the day of wrath of Yahuwah. Okay. From from my point of view, the day of wrath of Yahuwah is starting immediately after the tribulation finished. Okay. So so it, it seems to me that the, the day of wrath of Yahuwah could last almost a year. What it means is that uh, I believe that the, the tribulation is not seven years. So we were speaking about that in a few few weeks ago. I think it's a three and a half year period. And that some people mentioned is the great tribulation. These are the 1260 days. So immediately after that is coming the day of Yahuwah. It's my belief that uh, that's, uh, that's going to trigger the second exodus. And uh, finally, is the the word of uh, Armageddon, Harmegido. So, so that period of time, I believe, is going to be close to since the, the tribulation finished until uh, Yahushua is coming to the earth in this great battle of uh, Harmegido. It's going to last one year. Now, one year in this case is going to be 12 months. Uh, I don't think so. And that's important to consider in terms of the, how to count the time in, uh, uh, according to the scripture. It could be understood as well is the period of spring and summer, seven seven months, and that's the amazing thing that was referring to at the beginning that if we if we understand in the same way that happened during during the flood, that the flood started during the spring season, in this case in this case on second and in the second month, and basically the ark rested on the seventh month. We're talking about the period between spring and fall. And, and, and you know, that, that was one, one of the points I wanted to, to mention as well. This entire portion, you know, for me was an eye-opening when I was studying about uh, the timing and the calendar of Yahuwah. 
Uh, and, and I would invite uh, all of you uh, to, to, to take a look in more deeper details on the entire narrative of the flood and the timings that uh, is revealed over there. Because it's easily to understand when you count all the dates and the, and, and the specific number of days mm-hmm. that a month has 30 days. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, so together with that study, there's a specific verse in the chapter 7, uh, verse 22 after the, as part of the, the covenant between uh, Elohim and Noah, and it says, as long as the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. So it, it, it might, it, it's my current belief uh, and understanding that the, the scripture is talking about two seasons in a year. It's talking about summer and winter. And the other two, fall and spring, is blending. It's the similar thing that's happening during the day. You know, in day we have day and night, we have two blending seasons. It's morning and uh, an afternoon, evening. So so in, in case of the, the other cycle, the big cycle of the year, we have summer and winter, and we have two blending seasons. It's going to be spring and fall, and those seasons are, are, are somehow small because in the according to the scripture, especially, especially on this passage, the, the main the two... Uh, uh, Phases during the year is summer and winter. So, so from that point of view and that that, that, that understanding that uh, we have these two main uh, seasons, summer and winter, according to the scripture, it could be that the year that we I was referring to about the day of wrath of Yahuwah is going to last during that period of time, hmm. spring, the fall, and so and, during, and, and this like, is connected at so all direct, with the feast of the yeah, the That's what I was going to say. So. So, if I understand what you're saying, then th- that's interesting. So, let me see if I can say back to you what what you said to, to, yeah, to sure. see if I understand it. So, you 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 do understand the twelve sixty, the twelve sixty, the the time of the the two witnesses being three and a half years, and the time of the Antichrist being three and a half years. So, you understand that there's two three and a half time periods. No, actually, my, my, my current belief, uh, Rob, my current understanding is only one period of time. It's the same period of time, 1260. It's going to happen exactly the same. It's when the Antichrist is uh, ruling the, the earth. And it's the same period of time that the two witnesses are going to be prophesying. Uh, so you're in the three and a half year camp. Um, yes. Um, that's interesting. I mean, I, I, I've, I'm not prepared to argue either way on it at the moment. I'd have to go back and look at it because I, I had argued against that before. And I don't remember exactly all the talking points on it. So you're of the opinion that the, well, if the beast comes up out of the bottomless pit, that doesn't happen until the fifth trumpet. So how does that work? You Do you have the fifth trumpet going off before the 1260 years? How would that? No, that's, that, that's an interesting point. I, I'm not getting yet to the fifth trumpet because okay. I understand that this is, you believe that the, the, the fifth trumpet is basically opening the, the bottomless pit and it's the Antichrist coming up. Correct. Uh, I, I'm not getting there, there yet. It's my my current belief is that the trumpet is happening after during the after the the twelve twelve hundred sixty days. It's during the day of wrath. Well, but then you can't have the beast ruling for twelve hundred sixty days because he lives. He will, let me go. Let me let me look up. Um. And that's and that's an interesting point, uh, Robe, because uh, and that's why I was telling before. The, I, I need to get to that point in deeper details about the 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 trumpet, the fifth trumpet. And the connection with the Antichrist and the beast. Well, yeah, because yes, uh, as you said, that this is connecting to the to the beast coming up. Uh, it's changed completely the the, the timeline and the, and the understanding. 
Yeah, because Revelation 11.3 says, They shall prophesy, the two witnesses shall prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth, etc. And then they're killed by the beast, and the beast doesn't come up out of the bottomless pit until the fifth trumpet. So um, my understanding of the timeline would be that you have the seals, which I, I don't believe the seals have to fit in the seven years or the three and a half years, that, that at least three of the four could take place outside of that in the birth pain phase, which, you know, I believe we're on the verge of the third seal personally, where, you know, massive famine, a day's wage for food, you know, it, it wouldn't take much for us to tip this, the scales, so to speak, pardon the pun, to fall right into that, like, very quickly now. Um, and then the fourth one, death and all that, I think the fourth seal, um, I, I, I don't believe that it's linear in the sense that you have seals, trumpets, judgments, uh, or uh, uh, bowls, that there are overlaps, that everything slides over each other and there are overlaps. I'm of the opinion that the first three seals can happen outside of that, and then the overlaps start probably with the fourth seal overlapping with other things, and and and, and but that the opening of the bottomless pit is in the middle of that. I mean, there's every time I try to work it out, the math only works, at least in my mind, for that to be in the midpoint, and then for 1260, then we get to Revelation 12, because the beast is empowered by Satan, and Satan goes after the woman who goes off into the wilderness where the woman's protected for 1260 day, uh, days. So you have a testimony of 1260 days. They're killed after that. Woman goes to the wilderness for 1260 days. So I can't get around seven years when I look at the math and the wording of that and the timing of the beast arrival. So for the tribulation to only be 1260 days, uh, when does the trumpet, fifth trumpet happen? I mean, that's that's a big hang-up for me. Um, but but all that aside, and I'll let you answer that, I I, I can agree with the idea of the day of the Lord itself possibly being, well, I actually think it's one physical day. I don't even think it needs to be a whole year. But I could go with the idea that it could be a year. Um, that, that he just really pours out. The, the tribulation period is not the wrath of God. The beginning of it is the wrath of man against God. The second half of it is the wrath of the Antichrist against God and his people. And then the wrath of God, it's, Scripture says point blank, is in the bowls. The, the, the bowls contain the wrath of God, and the bowls are poured out on the day of the Lord, which could be anything from you know possibly one year, but I believe if I take a literal interpretation, it's one 24-hour time period. And even less than that, it says that in one hour, his wrath is poured out on Babylon. So, you know, if we think of the wrath of God, then that's a very short period of time compared to everything else, in my opinion. So... I'll turn it back over to you. Hey, hey, could I throw yeah. something out there real quick, guys, before you jumped in on that uh, one? Go ahead, Jake. Uh, you guys are bringing up the 1260, and I, I wanted to point something out. I don't know if you guys had noticed this, um, but you guys are familiar with the Revelation 12 sign being likened to the thing that happened in September 2017? Yeah, I don't buy it, but yeah, I'm familiar with the argument. I, I know, uh, it, you know, a lot of people, you know, they, either way, you know, there was an interesting thing that happened in the sky with, you know, 12 stars, you know, and, and what looked like a Revelation 12-ish sign. And um, uh, there's some people that brought up to me recently that um, uh, if you looked at the last day of Sukkot um, in 2017, which would have been uh, mid-October, um, and uh, that's actually the time frame where Jupiter would have exited the womb of that sign, you know, would have exited the womb of Virgo. 
that if you add 1260 days to the very last day of Sukkot 2017, it brings us to Passover 2021. Hmm. So well, that just something interesting to, you know, pay attention to if there is because whenever I look at that Revelation 12 uh, discussion, the 1260 seems to be a different time frame than the times, times and time and a half uh, that's mentioned later on in the chapter after the dragon is cast down from the war in heaven. So um, like I think there's, you know, two different time frames being given there in Revelation 12. And it's interesting that there's exactly 1260 days from the end, the last great day of Sukkot 2017 to Passover 2021. Well, there was also 1,260 days between the time that Obama said that um, I completed my first 100 days and whatever. And I'll cl- yeah, I heard about that. I'll complete my second <laughs> yeah. 172 days and rest on the 73rd day, which was a Sabbath, and he count 1,260 days for. So, I mean, there's all kinds of math gymnastics that people do when they see things that, you know, p- pardon me, but I've become a bit jaded <laughs> by, by a lot of that. Uh, you know, I look at it, I entertain it, I say, well, that's interesting, but I've, I've seen too many of them come and go with as non-events that you know uh you know it's it's i don't know i don't get too excited about these things anymore i used to be on those things i mean i remember steve when he did the daniel timeline video and and i produced a so not really a counter video but my take on it when he did the tam, daniel timeline the 119 ministries uh with 32213 uh, 2013 and there were all kinds of interesting 1260 days from this time period leads to this time period and then this is going to happen and then we're going to have the tetrads landing on this day and then could it be that that's going to be and I was like nah I don't think so um, I do believe that 32213 on the Gregorian calendar was an interesting and possibly significant day and I speculate and this is sheer speculation this is my own numbers that I'm throwing out there that could be just as wrong as everybody else's frankly um, that it may have kicked off the time that we call the time of Jacob's trouble and but when when Jeremiah said that I think it was Jeremiah when he mentions it is even the time of Jacob's trouble, I think it was Jeremiah, whichever prophet said it. <clears throat> um, the people who heard him say that the only frame of reference they would have had would have been in the Torah, not Tim LaHaye, not you know Hagee or Hal Lindsey or anybody else. The, when they heard the time of Jacob's trouble, they would have referred back to the Torah, you know. Uh, so with all due respect to Hal Lindsey and everybody else and Prophecy in the News and all those guys, they would have said, well, what does the Torah say? What was the time of Jacob's trouble? And Jacob himself, when he's complaining to Uncle Laban about all the stuff that he had to endure, he says that, you know, he calls it his time of affliction. And it was 20 years. These 20 years that I serve you and you were jacking with me the whole time, <laughs> messing with my wages and giving me the, the wrong bride and this, that, and the other thing. You know, that, that the time that Jacob identified as his, as his time of trouble or affliction lasted 20 years. And so my speculation was that, okay, if the 32213 event had any significance whatsoever, maybe it was a time period that kicks off the 20-year time of Jacob's trouble within which you would have uh, a, a period of wealth building. You would have a period that was, because he, he worked for um, Rachel but ended up with Leah. And uh, Leah produced Judah. And then he worked another seven years and finally got Rachel, and it was through Rachel that we have Ephraim. And so I wondered if the 20-year time period of Jacob's trouble might deal with seven years that ha- has a time of 
uh, tribulation or trouble for Judah, followed by seven years that have a trouble for Ephraim, which we're kind of in right now. Um, and then there would be a time where the two are united. Leah, the house of Leah and the house of Rachel are united for the remaining six years. Um, and that would be the culmination of the entire time of Jacob's trouble, which would end, uh, what was it, 20, uh, 20, 20 years from 2013 to uh, 2033, where there just so happens to be in, from 2033 to 34 is a whole other uh, blood moon tetrad cycle that happens, depending on what calendar you're using, it, uh, happens you know, roughly on the Moedim, just like the events that we saw in 2013 and 2014. So I don't know, sheer speculation, but I, I've seen going all the way back even to the early church fathers, the manipulation and the counting of numbers of, of events where they say, well, maybe this calendar, you know, this event kicks off this time period and everybody's been wrong so far. And this is one of the reasons why people like Brian Gadawa say he threw up his arms and say, okay, apparently the futurist camp don't, don't have their act together. They've been wrong so many times before, and he's jumped ship and become a preterist, <laughs> which which I, I just I can't get behind that either. So I, I find these events interesting. When I looked into the September 23rd event, 2017, I wasn't, frankly, I wasn't that impressed when I looked on Stellarium and saw the alignment that took place and compared it to the alignment of September 11, 3 BC, I wasn't really all that impressed with it. And then I found that a pretty close alignment happens almost every year uh, around that time. Uh, it's just the way the cosmos is, is rigged as far as the, the timing of the heavenly luminaries doing their thing that we, ha we find similar September 11, 3 BC events happening fairly often, frankly, you know, if you, if you use Solarium to look into it. So... Pardon my skepticism, but that's where I'm coming from and all that. But getting back to Juan yeah. Carlos. Uh, I did a complete study, you know, the last days, and we were, I was considering the, what happened in September 20th. You know, the, based on what uh, what is written in, in Tehillim and Psalms uh, 19, I think uh, Olohase believes that, uh, you know, he put the constellation, the Maserot, in the, in the, in the sky, and he is uh, giving us signs. That was the, the reason he created all of that. So, so you know, it's my my current belief is that uh, this, this sign they triggers something. Uh, it doesn't doesn't means that they trigger that period of time because uh, it's very difficult, as you said, uh, Rob, to to calculate times. But uh, the, the, I, I think it just a uh, matter to see what's going on in the world. Uh, I, I do believe that this time somehow triggered the the beginning of sorrows. Uh, and uh, you know, if we if we see what's uh, what had what has happened in, in the world after that. What's uh, what's going on with the Jerusalem as a city, uh, we can understand that the things are, are getting uh, stronger and harder and harder, mm. like the, the pains of a woman in labor. So is, is the sign or is not the sign? You know, just time will tell. And then going going to the point to, to calculate uh, times, uh, you know, I was part of the, that camp, uh, Jake, that uh, I was believing back then that most probably the rapture was going to, going to be one of the triggers. Uh, as part of the sign, uh, but uh, you know, after studying and studying, I think it was just a sign that they was the, giving us uh, some indication that we were closer uh, closer to the date. Uh, the only sign that is going to be on the earth, according to the the words of Mashiach, that we will understand that the tribulation will start is when we see the abomination of desolation being set up in, in Jerusalem. Yeah. 
And uh, then that's a we'll see one. that this, one, this, this, is, this is the moment, this is the time, guys. <laughs> so, so, so it's important to understand all of this and study, in, you know, with the Ruach uh, guiding us to see what's the, what's the, the reason behind. Uh, regarding the Trumpet 5, uh, you know, it's something that I will study in more details, uh, Rob. You know, so, so far, I mean, the, from the point that um, I heard in the past uh, that uh, the seals, the trumpet and the bulls are happening in parallel. Uh, it's not by belief so far. I still believe that it's happening in sequence. Mm. But, uh, you know, the point that you are bringing up about the, the fifth the trumpet is, is really interesting. So far, uh, I'm not to the point that uh, that angel is uh, the same as the beast. That's why I'm looking at it in, in that way. But anyway, I think you're, the point that you're bringing is so, so interesting regarding how could be the connection between the beast coming out of the bottomless pit with this angel on the on the fifth trumpet that uh, it deserves a deeper study. So my commitment is that we'll do it in more more details and we can have a an interesting discussion on that. Well, so, but on the but on the other side of it, it you know regardless of how the three and a half or the seven years play out, you're of the men mentality that the the real great tribulation is it's the wrath of God itself that is poured out in a short period of time between. Passover and Sukkot at the end of the tribulation period? Is that what you're trying no, to say? Is that between in the Moedim season between spring and fall is where that uh, that final judgment is poured out? I think, I think uh, yes, what I was saying, the great tribulation is the wrath of uh, the dragon. It's the wrath of uh, Satan. Okay. You know, he's come to the earth. The beast is, is going to be ruling the earth that period of three and a half years. Mm. After the period of time is coming the, the day of wrath of Yahuwah. And what I was saying before, that the day of wrath of Yahuwah will last between spring and fall, is the second exodus will happen during the period of time. Uh, and, and I'm completely with you. I understand the same, that the, the, the fullness of the wrath of Yahuwah is part of the wars. Mm -hmm. And that's going to happen after the, 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 the nation that needs to be born again, according to Isaiah 66, is born again. That's the rebirth that will happen during the second exodus. And when everybody is gathered together, as, as in the word of uh, Yahushua HaMashiach, you know, he's going to descend and he's going to uh, pour out his wrath. So so it doesn't mean that we are going to be as part of the wrath. He's going to start gathering his people during the, the period of the wrath, but the full wrath is going to be poured out as part of the rules. Mm -hmm. that, that's, that's my current understanding. Gotcha. Okay, well, very cool. We've gone long here, but fun stuff to be talking about for sure. Uh, I'll just share one final thing and, and get your final any final thoughts you guys might want to have related to what I say or anything else you'd like to share. Um, is that when Yeshua said that the last days would be like the days of Noah, I said earlier that that begs the question, what differentiates the days of Noah from any other time in human history? And I think Genesis 6.3 is, is the key to understanding that. And that was elaborated on by Joshua 4.28 and, and Jubilees 7.24, that b both of those passages, Jubilees and Joshua, elaborate on both Genesis 6.3 and Genesis 6.12, that said earth and all flesh had become corrupted. How did earth and all flesh become corrupted? It became corrupted through the blending of species, through genetic manipulation, through GMO activity, which up until the 20th century, that hasn't happened again since the time of Noah. You know, um, there have been wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, pestilence. All those things have been happening, and yes, they're going to happen in increasing 
uh, fashion in the last days, and that's why I posted something in the chat room a minute ago. There's a um, a ministry out there called End Times Productions that posted a video just uh, five days ago, October 12th. Um, they'll never tell the general public about this. That's what he called it. I think it was called something. Originally, that video was called Something Biblical is Happening Around the World, so it looks like he changed the title of that video. But um, I'll post the the link again in the chat room. Let me just make sure that's the same same one here. Because um, what he does, yeah, he just changed the title of it. So, I mean, he shows what the scriptures say and what is happening in increasing numbers, <laughs> definitely around the world. You know, earthquakes, all that stuff is happening, you know, exponentially. So I, I believe, yes, all the signs of Matthew 24 are happening in greater frequency and happening closer together in, in, in a great, to a greater extent than has happened in the past. But the one thing that happened in the days of Noah that has never happened in any other time in history since the days of Noah is the blending of species, GMO activity, messing up the kinds that Yahuwah created in spe- very specific kinds and said it is good and it is very good. That's happening in our day. So, you know, that's what a big part of my Archon Invasion series is and my whole ministry is about, is trying to wake people up to the reality of, like, and what's happening with the vaccines and stuff that is literally corrupting all flesh. The, the, acting, the act of messing around with the book of life. I believe the book of life is DNA. And that, because what, what are books? What, books contain words that tell a story. DNA contains letters that build Everything that is living on Earth right now. Plants, fish, birds, reptiles, animals, humans, everything. And we are now blending those things together and taking letters from different chapters that don't belong together and creating a new book that is not sanctioned, ordained, or blessed in any way by Yahuwah, but is in fact called an abomination. The blending of of things that were never meant to be blended together. Um... And so it is my opinion that that's what Yeshua was saying and that that is a, a, a new breed of Nephilim. Nephilim, many scholars believe, are only the byproduct of angels mating with humans, and that's certainly true. Angels mate with humans, that creates Nephilim. However, I, I extend, I broaden the term Nephilim to include that which has been corrupted from the original image that God created. Any kind of hybrid, unnatural hybridization, in my mind, is equivalent Nephilim. And so, are the Nephilim returning? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they are. They are returning through genetic manipulation. Could there also be a return of Nephilim in the sense of giants walking around? That could happen too. I mean, we're seeing increasing numbers of accounts of of giants being encountered like in 2002 when our troops in Afghanistan encountered a 12-foot cannibalistic uh, red-headed red-haired pale-skinned giant in Kandahar, Afghanistan. And Solomon Island Mysteries is a book people can look up online, Solomon Island Mysteries, and read about current accounts of giants in the Solomon Islands. Apparently that whole place, like Guadalcanal, is literally loaded with giants. So, you know, some of these movies like King Kong and Godzilla and all this stuff may be a little closer to the truth (laughs) that uh, some of this stuff may be released on the earth. And Isaiah... uh, forgive me if I get the address wrong, I think it's chapter 13 in the Septuagint version, talks about, you know, speak to the gates, ye rulers, giants are coming to fulfill my wrath. 
that in the end time, Giants are going to come back. So I'm of the opinion that that is the, the big part of what Yeshua is saying, is that in the days, as it was in the days of Noah, all 950 years of Noah's life, you have to go back and look at what was happening in the 600 years before the flood and the 350 after the flood to understand, fully understand, Yeshua's uh, prediction, prophecy, that the last days would be likened unto the days of Noah. So that's my take on it. I'll leave it to you guys now. Uh, Juan, if you want to give your final thoughts, and then, Jake, you can close us out. Yes, uh, Rob, actually, the, the reflection I wanted to share with you guys, and, and this is totally connected to what you said, uh, Rob, now. The, the words of Mashiach is that uh, the days before his coming, it's going to be like the days of Noah. So I think it's really important for uh, all of us individually uh, we need to understand that uh, we have a perfect example in the life of Noah uh, in order to conduct our, our lives uh, today. And you know, it's written in, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8 and 9, that Noah found favor, he found grace in the eyes of Yahuwah. And what was the four characteristics of, uh, of Noah? First one, he was a sadiq, he was righteous. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what is written in this, uh, these passages. Second, he was perfect in his generation. There, he walked mm. with, with, with Elohim. And four, he was obedient. Everything that he was got in, in, as an instruction from Yahuwah, he do, did it in that way. And, uh, and you know, it's important, these four characteristics, uh, characteristic because we see in, in, in Psalms that the, the righteous will inherit the earth. This is what it's written. So, so if we want to do that, we want to inherit the earth, we need to be righteous. Uh, also, we see in Habakkuk that the, the righteous live by his faith. So, so faith is connected to become a righteous uh, person, to be sadiq in Hebrew. How to be perfect? And, uh, you know, Yahushua answered the, the, the rich uh, young uh, men how to be perfect. It's basically to deny ourselves. Walk with, with the Elohim, you know. We see also that uh, Hanoch, Enoch, walk with the Elohim. We see the example of Enoch, and we know that who is the way? Walking with Elohim is to follow the way of Yahuwah. And who is the way? Yahushua HaMashiach. Is the way, so he need, we need to follow his uh, his uh, footsteps, and uh, and we see two two amazing things on this. And just to, to finish very quickly, and uh, what is written in, in Tehillim Psalms, one nineteen verse one, and and this is the the key for everything. You know, it said the following: Blessed are the perfect in the way, who walk in the Torah of Yahuwah. So 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 this needs to be a reminder for all of us every day that we need to walk in the Torah of Yahuwah, we need to follow the step of Yahushua in order to find favor uh, before the eyes of Yahuwah. And it is something really interesting written in, in the book of uh, Ezekiel, and I will invite all of you to read the chapter 14, since the verse 12 onward. Because it, it says how Yahuwah, in case he's bringing uh, some, some, uh, uh, some destruction over the land, uh, and in the land, it says in the verse 14 of Ezekiel chapter 14, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they could deliver only themselves by their righteousness. So, so mm. walking in the righteousness, you know what Yahushua said, that we need to look and seek for the righteousness and the kingdom of Yahuwah. If we are in the righteousness of the kingdom, we are going to deliver our souls, our, our beings. And that is really important because contrary to what happened during the flood, it is written in the book of Ezekiel that they, they are going to deliver themselves, not even his family, as it happened in the flood. So, so this is so important that we remind ourselves, especially in the days that we're living, understanding the word of Yahushua, mm. that we are living in the days of Noah in, in our days. 
that we need to live in righteousness. We need to walk in perfection toward our Elohim. And we need to have this personal relationship with him because it's up to you, up to me in an individual uh, way to have this relationship with Elohim in order to be righteous before his eyes. So, so that's my, my, my final take and what I wanted to share, guys. I think it's important to keep this in mind, considering everything that's going on in the world and the parallel that we have with the, with the narrative of the flood. Mm, amen. Awesome. Good word. And Jake, close us out. What are your final thoughts? Yeah, um, the days of Noah, I think uh, I, I was kind of making the point earlier when I was talking about the analogy with those uh, people going and banging on the the door of the ark saying let us in and that parallel uh, with the parable of the ten virgins the five wise that get to go in and the five foolish that are like let us in and he says depart from me I, I don't know you um, and the significance of these days of Noah you know it was a time of wickedness and we see that um, in Matthew 24:12, 12, it talks about because the multiplication of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. Um, so, you know, the more and more as a as as, you know, an, you know, as all the nations kind of turn their hearts away from the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob um, and promote wickedness, you know, that's all the more reason for us to be. Uh, repenting ourselves and not going the way of the world, separating ourselves out from the Babylonian system, uh, making our minds set to not accept a mark of the beast or not worship, you know, a a reiteration of this Nimrod figure, you know, that we're seeing here, you know, somebody that sets himself up as God to be worshipped as God. And, um, you know, there's a, a message that's given to the church of Sardis in Revelation 3, and it says... Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know the hour when I have come upon you. But you do have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and because they are worthy, they will walk with me in white. Like them, he who overcomes will be dressed in white, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life, for I will confess his name before my Father and his angels. And so, yes, the time of Noah is kind of characterized by these people that Noah and Methuselah were going before, and they were saying, repent, we have 120 years. They had 120 years of claiming, you know, that Yah was willing to turn his wrath away from them and, and keep them, and they were begging them to, them to repent. Um, but we see that, you know, of course, they had hardened their hearts, and, uh, and this is likened to the verse um, in uh, Luke 21, 26, uh, about how, you know, when it's too late, you know, people are going to realize what they've missed out on. Maybe it's literally they see a greater exodus happen and before their eyes and they don't partake or, or you know, they had that opportunity to repent and call on the name of, of Yah, but they, they don't. Um, but Luke twenty one twenty six says, Men's hearts fail them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Um, and it talks about in Jasher how he, he was merciful to those who were righteous before the flood and he had them pass away and they died so that they wouldn't see the terrible thing that was about to fall on all their brothers and sisters and friends and children when the flood came upon the earth. And, uh, and all of those people who were wicked, they, they received that curse, that judgment um, of having to die in the flood because they would not turn their hearts and repent. 
And so, you know, this is all things that we should be considering. You know, uh, we've been talking about, you know, the feasts and all this kind of stuff and, the, you know, different timelines. But bottom line, now that things in the world are changing, I am going to be paying very close attention every time feast season comes around, mm-hmm. you know, regardless of calendar. You know, I, I'm going to be paying attention to calendars I'm not keeping too, just in the case that I might be wrong about something. Um, because, you know, all the, you know, the, the new Testament Paul writing talks about how, you know, you know, whenever you see these things come upon the earth, you know, look up for your redemption draws nigh, right? Well, that's, that's all the more reason for us to be paying attention to these feast cycles. You know, whether we have, I, I'm of depression, you know, just like you said, Rob, Jacob's trouble is more like a 20 year period. Um, and I, I'm under the impression that, you know, that we have quite some time, you know, at least 20, you know, maybe 30 years um, before something happens, probably closer to 20 in my personal opinion. But, you know, the every feast, you know, let's pay attention because there's a lot of things that happen before, you know, other things happen. So, you know, it's not just waiting for mm-hmm. the the great tribulation. It's, you know, paying attention because Yah's going to be doing things all leading up until the consummation of the ages. And one last uh, comment on the whole uh, the intermingling of DNA and the corruption of flesh. Um, you know, just with this whole COVID-19 vaccine stuff, you know, there's reports that they're going to be uh, putting forward a vaccine unlike any vaccine that has been presented in the past. And uh, it's, it's you know, it's an mRNA vaccine, which is supposedly uh, the same methodology that they use to create gen- genetically modified organisms. Mm-hmm. And so if in mass people inject themselves with a type of vaccine that actually uh, writes the DNA of the virus into your your genetic code so that your body then begins to produce this virus in order to continue on uh, you know building your body's immunity well that's the whole premise of the M- mRNA vaccine and if that's what comes down the chute based on all these things being kicked out then you know we, we can see the corruption of all flesh, uh, coming upon the earth once again very soon um, if it works in the way that I've had people explain it to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so just be aware, you know, of all these weird things. You know, we're being preconditioned to just blindly obey the powers that be, whether it makes logical sense or not. And so that's the same preconditioning that I would assume would be set up before a, a, a real deal mark of the beast. And, uh, and, we're seeing that, you know, churches, you know, are bowing down to mandates. We're seeing, uh, you know, believers are isolating themselves out of fear of a, you know, an invisible thing that like, you know, you know, there's, you know, questions about the, you know, the, the legitimacy of this whole thing in the first place. So, um, you know, you also have that New Testament premise of, you know, do not forsake the assembling together of yourselves even more so as you see that day approaching but that's the whole bottom line of this whole virus pandemic pandemic whatever is that don't congregate don't get together and uh and it's my opinion that you know in the end times that that mentality is going to push all the more to the extreme because it weakens people when you're not able to congregate when you're not able to lay hands on one another worship together pray together they want us all staying in our houses alone and scared and afraid and it's just going to get worse and we see how 
extreme people have gone with just a you know a you know a 99 percentile survival rate well imagine when you know a third of the earth's population dies because of wormwood you know and the things that the government's going to be telling us we have to obey and do at the penalty of death you know if we don't worship the mark of the beast you know worship the image of the beast and receive his mark on our hand or forehead so basically we are in this time frame where people have the opportunity to strengthen their fortitude and increase their faith so that when it comes down to basically obey the word of god or reject it and you know take your part with those who worship the antichrist you know let's be those that stay strong and love not our lives even until death no matter what that looks like and uh i'll leave it at that all right yeah fantastic jake really good good stuff there um there was a video that I posted, um, I mirrored on my YouTube channel that I recommend people check out. It's called Civil War 2020, How We're Being Divided and What We Can Do Before It's Too Late Mirrored. And now, uh, people, in the, as usual, go psycho in the chat room. Um, but this was done by a friend of mine, Dave Weiss. Uh, Weiss, not Dave Weiss. <laughs> There's David Weiss is uh, a flat earther guy. David Weiss. W-I-S-E, is a Torah-keeping believer in Yeshua uh, who put together what I consider to be a really good game plan. And basically, it's it's saying, look, they are trying to separate us, you know, physically. They don't want us meeting together. They're trying to isolate us. where We're all stuck at home watching their brainwashing, mind-controlling mainstream media narrative that is only fostering more and more hatred for mankind. And he gives some practical steps of action in here. Yes, he understands that Yeshua is the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And that ultimately, you know, our hope and faith and trust needs to be in him. He gets that, but that's not the point of this video. This point of this video is, look, we're stuck in this world. This is what this world's doing to us. Here are some practical steps of action that we can take to not allow them to turn us against each other. The, their greatest fear, they, they, they being the Illuminati, the, the people who are pulling the strings in mainstream media and stuff like that, their greatest fear is us, the masses, 7.5 billion people waking up to the fact that we, you and I, are not the enemy of each other. They are the enemy of all of us. They fear all of us. They fear the masses waking up to the reality of us realizing that they are the puppet masters pulling the strings that are manipulating us to fight each other. And if we can stop doing that, and he gives practical steps of action for how to do that, then we can start focusing our attention on who it is that is our enemy instead of realizing, instead of believing that we are the enemy. In other words, our next-door neighbors or people of a different skin color, which is so ridiculous. Anybody out there who is 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 launching attacks or being prejudiced or, or believing somebody is inferior or, or superior based on skin color is the height of ignorance, in my opinion. I am so against all of that. I can't stand racism and bigotry. I hate it. But that's what mainstream media is is trying to do is get us to hate each other and believe that, you know, just because this person's got a certain skin color or his eyes are shaped a certain way, they are the enemy. No, we have an enemy. The Bible calls him Satan, the accuser of the brethren. And he has his minions. And unfortunately, those minions are the ones that are controlling mainstream media. Six Luciferian-run corporations control all of the media that's coming out in print and radio and television and all of that's designed to get us in fear 
to be living and being afraid of our next door neighbor as a virus bag that's going to infect us, trying to uh, create this whole, you know, um, what do you call it, a bipolar thing where it's, it's Democrat versus Republican, it's white versus black, you know, it's Chinese versus everybody else or whatever. We've got to stop that. In this video, I think uh, he does a really good job of that. The purpose of this video is to try to deprogram ourselves. And so he allowed me to uh, mirror it on my channel because he just started his channel. So if you uh, I'll click on this right here, I'll put the link in the chat room. He's starting a whole new series. And like I said, he's a Torah following believer in Yeshua. Okay. And he's a personal friend of mine. Subscribe to his channel. Get behind what he's doing. Check it out. Interact with him if you want to understand more. Don't just call him names as so many people on my channel are prone to do. Go look into what he's trying to do. Contact him. I'm going to try to get him on my radio show actually to unpack uh, this stuff um, to really talk about it at length, uh, what, what he's trying to do and everything like that. But anyway, just wanted to elaborate on that. And one more thing before we close out. Let me uh, invite people to the Discord. Again, somebody said the Discord link I sent is not working. Uh, I'll try it again. Um, we have a s server on the software called Discord. Not a fan of the name, but it is what it is. Provides some pretty cool tools for us to interact with each other. Uh, and so I just posted a link that's good for 24 hours. And um, there's several channels within this. You have the general conversation, talk about whatever you want, continue the discussion about what we're doing here in the virtual house church, continue the discussion there after we're done. Logo competition is over with. We got a winner on that. Probably need to just remove that. Um, although there's some pretty interesting stuff there, so maybe I'll leave it in there just uh, just to have it there. But Hebrew learning, learning about the, the Hebrew language, biblical cosmology, prayer closet. What about Paul? And I recently uh, created the dietary channel because, frankly, a lot of people have questions about that. How should we be eating, you know, biblically speaking? And so that's a place where you can have discussions uh, in that regard. And then, of course, we have the voice channels where you can get in there and actually, you know, talk with each other for real, you know, interact with your brothers and sisters that way. So hopefully you guys uh, enjoy all of that and will benefit from that. And hopefully you've enjoyed this week's Wow, we've gone almost three hours this week's virtual house church. <laughs> we did a long one here. Uh, anyway, thank you guys. Thank you, Juan Carlos. Thank you, Jake. Always fantastic insights and uh, always enjoy sharing Shabbat with you. Thank you guys so much for your input. Thank you, guys. Shabbat shalom. All right, and with that, Shabbat shalom to everybody. We'll see you back next week on the virtual house church.